Give me a go, no go for launch. Just when you think you're out, they pull you back in. I was gonna say something that was not true. I, I don't know why we do these. Let's make film history. We are go for launch. Welcome back, everybody, to the Almost Sideways podcast. We are so glad you are joining us for episode 142. We're recording on Sunday, September 5th, 2021 at 2 p.m. Pacific time. I'm your host, Terry Plucknett. Joining me is the whole, whole crew, Zach Saltz, Todd Plucknett, Adam Daly. And this is the big one, guys. This is the episode we are revealing our top 10 films of all time, finally paying off this uh, month-long uh, quest we've had of, uh, of revealing our favorite movies of all time. And it's going to end with our top 10s and then a reveal of our top 25 of all time as a site. So I'm excited. You guys excited? I'm, I'm hyped for the top 25. That's going to be cool. I'm excited for the prop bets. You know, before this episode, I actually put $10 down on the 10,001 bet that Space Jam 2 will be in one of our top 10 lists. I'm, I'm liking oh, yeah. those odds today. It's a flyer, but that that is a flyer. As a flyer, those are good odds, though. Yeah, those are good odds. Ten thousand one, you got to bet. You just got to bet it, right? (laughs) Might as well. I mean, hopefully, hopefully, the anticipation actually, actually, you know, pays off. Other than you know, yesterday being a being a Washington college football fan. Whether whether it's Huskies or Cougars, it was bad all around. I don't know. I thought it was kind of beautiful as a Duck fan. No, the Ducks who almost lost to Fresno State. Hey, we look good, okay? Fresno's a, Fresno's <laughs> quality. It's not Montana quality, I guess, but uh, they're they're quality. I mean, good is a relative term, I guess. I mean, Montana's best go. player plays for Nebraska now, <laughs> so yeah, that's that true. Worse. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, well, let's get into this. Make sure that oh. you are. Yes, Adam. Go Mariners! That's all I was saying. We gained ground. On the that's A, true. So. That's true. That is the one good thing going on in in Seattle sports. And this is the last NFL, or last Sunday without the NFL until February. So that's pretty awesome too. Okay, make sure you're subscribed, rate, and reviewing all over the internet. You can find us Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Pandora, Spotify. Find us on YouTube where you can find clips of the show and other stuff. What are we drinking today? Zach, I see you are in your classroom, so I'm I'm kind of assuming that the Starbucks cup is about to make an appearance. Oh no, this is my classroom uh, jug. Oh. there. I think we can just <laughs> leave it up to the audience's imagination what's inside. How about that? <laughs> Since I am on school property. <clears throat> yes, yes. All right, Todd, what do you got? Uh, I'm drinking some wine from the uh, Cloud Breaks Winery in uh, California. This is the Black Cloud Red Blend. Mm, I wonder if that's a hint for one of your movies in your top 10. Keep Maybe. it classy, dude. Keep it classy. Adam? I was thinking about going with the cranberry juice, but I just decided to go with a Jameson whiskey sour. So there we go. Make there another appearance. Another appearance of the Seven Seas glass. Mm-hmm. That's how we do it. <laughs> uh, so I, I want, I, I, I'm not giving any hints to what might be popping up on my list. I mean, I'm, I'm wearing my failure is not an option shirt and I'm drinking space dust tonight. Oh, so there we um, go. I mean, it, it's, it's not a hint of any way, shape or form to anything that might be mentioned. Uh, yeah, we may have a problem at some, at some point. 
Yeah, uh, let's hope there's no problems. Yeah. <laughs> we know we don't need any technical difficulties going on. Oh yeah, no. All right. Uh, so we're gonna go through what we've been watching. We do have a review to go through before we get to our top ten. So let's get into it. Uh, let's start with let's start with Adam. What'd you mm, watch this week, okay. Adam? All right. So I had a couple movies. I actually had a watched a, quite a few movies today, and uh, some some good ones, some bad ones. But I kind of want to talk about a recent release movie that we haven't talked about recently. Let's Don't Breathe Two. Uh, so yeah. I really love the first Don't Breathe. It actually appeared in my top 10. It was a tie between uh, Hush as well, which was a, you can find on Netflix, which are both cool and home invasion type of movies. One from a perspective of some kids breaking into a house, which is Don't Breathe, and kind of find out that Stephen Lang's character is kind of a badass, and he's also kind of a creep as well. And the Hush is one where a bad guy is trying to get into a, a lady's house who is also deaf and mute. So it's kind of a cool, interesting perspective. So blind, deaf, mute, all that kind of so I figured tie tied those in together. Never thought that Don't Breathe would ever have a sequel. And then come find out there's a trailer that popped up and it was a couple of weeks away. So, of course, we got kind of excited because being fans of the first movie. And a Don't Breathe 2 takes place sometime after the, the events of the first one. That's really not really specific. But the blind man, played by Stephen Lang, has this little girl they called Phoenix that she's found uh, who escaped a fire and kind of raised him to be this kind of really cool kid uh survivalist and come to find out there's these creeps in around town that come to come come break into the blind man's house to kidnap that little girl and some crazy stuff happens where there's some really unique kills some uh, fun some fun atmospheric uh elements here but with having not having feedy alvarez behind the helm kind of takes back some of the cool exciting stuff that happened in the first film overall i feel like this film really had some interesting ideas but it should never have been a sequel it should have been kind of its own movie it a uh, different property i think the this is what uh making sequels to everything is kind of a bad idea because it takes everything that the first one did and completely kind of changes the formula in an uninteresting way like again there's some cool entertainment value there if you like the first one but overall, and giving this kind of a one-star rating, even my wife, who was really anticipating it, kind of felt disappointed by the film, uh, considering that there was no ties into that first movie whatsoever. Uh, there was an there was it was open to the first film to go after the girl that survived the first one, but they didn't choose to go that route. So overall, kind of disappointing. You kind of were watching this one for some interesting kills, some stuff that happens is kind of interesting but doesn't really have a good payoff so overall i'm giving it a one star kind of a disappointing film for me near the bottom of my 2021 list so if you're if you like the first one it's still maybe worth the watch but don't go with expectations and i guess so, it just also just popped up on amazon too you can rent it there so so friday night i've been i've been trying to do friday night double features at the movies so i had to go see the movie we're reviewing and there were only two other movies I hadn't seen oh, yet that were playing it. there. And it was Don't Breathe 2. And I hadn't seen the first one. So I opted instead for option number two, which was Jungle Cruise. And I kind of wish I would have just gone home. I'll just put it <laughs> <Yeah>. that way. <laughs> Jungle Cruise, we, I gave kind of uh, that many stars too. Yeah, <laughs> you, you were more generous than I was. Okay. Yeah. Don't Breathe 2. Sounds good. So, so if you like the if you like the first one, you might like some stuff, but it wasn't that great. 
Yeah, pretty much. It's kind of a more disappointing thing. Stephen Lang's awesome in it. Like, that's what you're seeing it for, like, what he's able to do as that character. That's really cool. His big standout performance there. But P.D. Alvarez, I wish it, it probably would have been better if he was the director. I would say that. Okay. He wrote part of the story, but didn't direct. All right. Sounds good. Todd, where are we going to this week? Uh, I'm sticking with Matt Dillon movies. I think that's going to be what I'm doing. <laughs> Uh, so I'm going to 2006, directed by the Russo brothers. It's oh, no. You, Me, and Dupree. Oh, God, no. And, uh, <laughs> Classic. So this is about Carl and Molly, and they just get married. That's Matt Dillon and Kate Hudson. And they're, like, looking forward to a quiet life together. But uh, his friend, Dupree, uh, is played by Owen Wilson. He's the best man in the wedding. And he evidently gets, like, fired from his job because he goes to the wedding. And so Carl feels bad because he's, like, living in in uh in the in the local bar and he's like okay you can't do this like you should come live with us and uh, obviously molly thinks it's a bad idea from the start but you know they're like okay we'll let him get back on his feet and dupree's sort of a party animal he's like um it's sort of like the nick swardson type character if this was like an adam sandler movie and like david spade would be like or it's, i don't know it could have been a spade sandler movie or something like that but uh, also, Molly's father is Carl's boss, and it's played by Michael Douglas, and he hates Carl, but Molly can't really know that. So Carl's life is just in this, like, big upheaval, and um, it follows these characters as they're going through all this shit. And apparently Seth Rogen's in this, which I had no idea. I thought I had seen all Seth Rogen movies, but I guess I hadn't seen this one. Um, uh, he's, yeah, he's another party animal, and he gets as many laughs as the three leads do. He's uh, basically Cal in Four-Year-Old Virgin, which is predictable because it's right after that. There's also randomly Harry Dean Stanton in this movie and Bill Hader. Uh, but Dylan is a pretty likable protagonist. Usually he's a douchebag, but this this one, he's like the the one who uh, who isn't wrecking everything. And he we get to see him like reliving his glory days, which is kind of fun. Michael Douglas is basically like President Andrew Shepard as a businessman, uh, which is right in his wheelhouse. Kate Hudson's really wasted in this movie. It's, she's, it's kind of just an underwritten role, and I, I was kind of upset but she didn't get that much. Owen Wilson's just like on fire, though. Like he's He's like a grown-up stiffler type character, and uh, mm -hmm. and I would have never expected that. It's definitely post-Wedding Crashers for why he got cast, but I mean, I think he's he's good and not just playing the mopey loser that he normally does. There's a lot of, like, School of Rock in this. There's some Meet the Parents, some Hot Rod. Uh, I mean, you would never guess that the guys directing it were, like, comic book geniuses, but it's they, this is when they were doing, like, community and Arrested Development. It's definitely in the community vein more in tone than Arrested Development. I think I'd watch it again, and it's like clo it'd be close to a three-star movie for me. I mean, it's it's really dumb, and a lot of the jokes are kind of distasteful, but the actors bring a lot of heart to it, and I sort of am on the edge of a recommendation. But it's so it's a two and a half-star movie for now, which puts it number thirteen on my list of Matt Dillon movies. I don't know what this thing is called. I've only seen twenty-two, but it's between Wild Things and Sunlight Junior. If you want some perspective <laughs> wow. on that, there you go. I actually remember seeing this movie. I checked it out from the library. I have to revisit after hearing your thoughts because it's been a while, but I, I remember Owen Wilson being amazing in it, so he's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, he's, yeah, it's, I've never seen him act like that, but I mean, he's, because he's normally the, the straight-laced one, mm -hmm. he'd be more likely they'd be flipping roles, essentially. Yeah, and I think we need to call this list the MDI, the Matt the Dillon MDI. Index. <laughs> Yeah, okay. I feel like he had a, a, a resurgence right on the heels of Crash, um, yeah. like after Crash. Like, um, he was in the Herbie movie, I remember, and then he was in the Charles Bukowski movie. 
It's like a nice little run there in the late uh, 2000s. And they're all on my list of movies to watch. <laughs> nice. There we go. Nice. There we go. All right, Zach, where are we going? All right, so we're going to South Korea, and uh, a movie I watched this week, which is currently on Amazon Prime, uh, and I encourage everybody to check it out. It's a movie called House of Hummingbird, directed by Bora Kim. Um, it's from about, I think, three, three or four years ago, and it is a coming-of-age story uh, that uh, stars Jihoo Park as Yoon Yi, excuse me, who is a 14-year-old girl living in Seoul in 1994. Um, that's a sort of significant year in South Korean history because there was a big bridge collapse and the movie sort of, um, that, that sort of bookends the movie in a way. Um, this is a movie that is about this girl who is going through, uh, she's essentially in eighth grade and there are a lot of unmistakable parallels to the Bo Burnham movie, Eighth Grade. It's, I guess you could sort of call it a South Korean version of eighth grade in a way. She deals with like awkward first crushes and friendships that kind of turn manipulative. She deals with teachers and her family, which uh, she has an older brother who like beats her up and a father who's very distant and kind of cold. Um, actually, it really kind of borders on like child abuse that this girl goes through. Um, she does start to build a relationship with her Chinese tutor in the movie. And that dynamic is a little bit like Miss Honey Matilda in Matilda. Um, it's a really good movie. It's slow paced for sure. And it's a first time feature, but uh, it, it's charming and it kind of grows on you. And um, I would say it goes in some directions that, that wasn't, uh, I wasn't quite expecting. It's two and a half hours. It's very kind of meditative. So you got to go with it. A solid three star movie. I will also say that on Wednesday night, I went to a Royals game. It was the first time I've been to a Royals game uh, since COVID-19. And uh, in classic Royals style, they were playing the Indians, and they, uh, they, it went to extra innings. It was really a fun game to watch. And somehow the Royals had three men on with no outs in the bottom of the 10th inning and still lost. So, yeah, go Royals. I don't know how that's possible. I think that's, what, like a 97% probability of winning? Anyway, uh, yeah, go Royals. Sounds like the Mariners sometimes. <laughs> well, but then, then the Royals played the Mariners, what, last week and beat them three out of four. Thanks yeah, to Salvador was... Perez. He hit a home run yeah. every single game. And, and Sal, Sal went yeah. 0 for 4 on Wednesday night. And he, 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 I, even was, I was ready for him to, him to hit the game-winning uh, grand slam. But uh, yeah, just a fail on all levels. Only against the Mariners. He's had a I great guess. month. But not, not the time I saw him. <laughs> all right. All right, so moving Jungle on. Jungle Cruise, Terry. No, I'm not talking about Jungle Cruise. <laughs> oh. Uh, all right, so my my Oscar watch this week. We're going back 30 years to 1991. Let's see if you guys can guess it. This was nominated for two Oscars. Both were for acting. Rambling Rose. Rambling Rose is correct. Oh, there we go. All right, yeah. So Rambling Lord Rose. Uh, this was directed by Martha Coolidge. Uh, the two nominees were uh, Laura Dern for Best Actress and her mother, Diane Ladd, for Best Supporting Actress. And um, this is kind of like, it's kind of interesting because as I was watching, I was thinking this is Man in the Moon kind of flipped on its head a little bit, where in Man in the Moon, you had uh, a young girl kind of having her first great crush on uh on an older boy in the neighborhood. This is kind of reversed where you have a, a young boy played by uh, uh, Lucas Haas, who is um, who all of a sudden sees like the epitome of his dream girl walk down the road and stay at his house as the new nanny, basically. 
and that's Laura Dern. Uh, the parents are played by Robert Duvall and Diane Ladd. And, um, and you kind of get the idea. Laura Dern's character, Rose, has been through some things, and, and she'd kind of been rescued into getting a second chance at this home. Uh, but she, she's got some demons, and she, she has some, um, some, uh, some issues that she's kind of working through throughout. And then you have uh, Buddy, who is the young boy, who is working, working through being a preteen with his dream girl in the house. Uh, and so it definitely goes a lot darker than man in the moon does in some of the relationship aspects. Uh, it gets downright weird at times in, in how Laura Dern has some serious impulse control. Um, but she's amazing in it. Diane Ladd's amazing. Robert Duvall, as I was watching this, uh, and seeing him, I felt like no one aged faster than Robert Duvall in the nineties. Because you in 1991, he makes this where he still basically looks like Tom Hagen from The Godfather and The Godfather Part Two, And then at the end of the decade, he's making Gone in 60 Seconds where he's like this grizzled old car, car mechanic and looks like he's 80. And and so he goes from looking from 40 to 80 in one decade. I thought that was fascinating. Um, but I, the, the performances are good. The storytelling is a little is a little weak. And it also tries to set it um as this like flashback um, bookended by uh, and, and it doesn't do anything else with it other than the first five minutes and the last five minutes of the movie, this uh, this return home for the buddy character who the adult version is played by John Hurd with this horrible Southern accent. And it is completely unnecessary and just useless, just screen time to have. Um, and so I'm giving it two and a half stars. Um, I thought it, it was the story kind of went in some weird directions. And then just the bookends were, were completely just horrible, but the performances definitely deserve the Oscar nominations. They, they got, has anybody else seen this? I have, I, I have no recollection of it, except that it was a unique uh, mother daughter Oscar nomination duo, which was kind of rare and interesting. Yeah. I ended up buying it digitally because it was like $5 to rent online or $6 to buy. And it's like, all right, well, I'll just add it to my digital collection. So yeah. Todd, have you seen this one? Yeah, I'm similar. I don't really remember that much about it. I don't even remember what I rated it. So, but I know I watched it. I, I thought it was really crazy how it was very, had some very serious parallels to man in the moon, which came out the exact same year. Yeah, I remember being a lot more sexual though. Like, yes. uh, you know, it's it's kind of like I remember thinking it was kind of like uh, a modern day version of Baby Doll, the Elia Kazan movie from the fifties. Um, mm. But I don't remember it being particularly great though. It's kind of sh sharing a lot of what you said, even though I can't say I remember much of it. Yeah, Ro Rose is definitely very physical in her in, in her relationships. We'll just leave it at that. That's why she's rambling, Rose. That's why she's rambling, Rose. Exactly. All right. So that's what we've been watching. Now it's time to get into our featured review. And for this week, we are looking at the latest to come at us from the MCU. I would say really kicking off like the next phase of the MCU. Black Widow was kind of a, a swan song that, to the last part. But we're looking at Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. I thought I could change my 
my name. Start a new life. But I could never escape his shadow. And uh, for this, I mean, if we're talking, if we're talking MCU, we've got to go to the expert first. Zach, tell us what you thought of of Shang Chi and uh, and everything that it's about. Well, listen, I've given a lot of Marvel movies thumbs up as of late. I think I was the only one in on this podcast who, who liked Black Widow. So I guess I am the authority. So Shang-Chi uh, is directed by uh, Destin Daniel Cre- Creighton, who also made Short Term 12, which I think is one of the best movies of the decade. And I really like Just Mercy. I'm, I know Todd's not a huge fan of it, but um, I think this guy's a really talented filmmaker. Um, the movie stars uh, Simu Liu, who I've never seen in any movie before. Um, but he plays the main character, Shang-Chi, who, as we meet him in the movie, goes by Sean, and he's living in San Francisco, and he's working at a hotel as, like, a, like a valet driver, and he's, his best friend is Aquafina. She plays Katie. And uh, what, what the characters, what Katie doesn't know, but we know, is that Sean actually is Shang-Chi. He has uh, parents who have extraordinary powers and circumstances, um, and as the movie kind of opens, he is summoned back to Macau to try to protect his sister from uh, his father, from their father, play, uh, played by Tony Leung. And uh, he is basically this kind of crazed guy who wants, uh, the, who, who bestows the power of the, the Ten Rings. Gosh, I'm already butchering the description of this, but that's why you have me read the Marvel movies, huh? Um, okay. Let's let's talk about just my reaction to the movie because I can I can articulate that better. Um, I really enjoyed this movie. Uh, I went in very skeptical, uh, as I do often with Marvel movies, but I found myself actually quite invested in the movie. I really, especially like the opening thirty minutes. It opens with this great kind of homage to Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. This really cool fight sequence uh, at the beginning of the movie, and even when it goes to San Francisco in the present day, um, I like this character. There's definitely some like Peter Parker, Spider-Man vibes to him. And there's a terrific sequence on a bus uh, that, first of all, it's hard to watch that sequence and not think about uh, the movie Nobody, which we reviewed from earlier this year, because similarly, it's where, the, where Shang-Chi's powers are kind of revealed. But this is a much better sequence. And I got to say, more movies should be set on buses uh, because <laughs> it makes me think that if Speed were remade today... Uh, Aquafina would have to play the Sandra Bullock role. I, that, that was such a given from uh, that, that scene. Um, I want to talk a little bit about Aquafina in this movie. I think she's the MVP of this movie. She's terrific. I think, like, she's... I can't really imagine at this point me ever giving thumbs down to a movie she has a considerable role in. She has so much uh, dynamic range as an actor. She can be serious. She can be funny. She can be... Uh, I, I would love to see her as a villain in something. Um, she's great. In fact, I think one of the flaws in this movie, if there is a flaw, is that I almost don't think the movie should have been about Chang-Chi. I think it should have been about Katie. It should have been called Katie in the Legend of the Ten Rings because she actually has a lot of significance later in the movie, especially the kind of climactic battle sequences. She plays a pretty big role in that. Um, and she's just wonderful and awesome as, as always. Um, but I also, you know, I think all the actors are pretty good in this movie. Um, it's really nice to see Tony Leung again, and it's nice to see Michelle Yeoh, even though they're both quite a bit older than maybe we remember them from the 90s. Um, this movie has some pretty cool set pieces and some cool battles, but it's really more about a character study of this Shang-Chi character, um, his background, uh, his motivations for um, why he wants to attain uh, the Ten Rings, what that really means. 
Um, there is a little bit of a some some comic under some some comic uh, undercurrents, um, and I hope this is not too much of a spoiler. But you know, of course, this movie is based around the idea of the, the character of the, of the Mandarin, who we last saw in Iron Man three. But he wasn't really Mandarin; it was Ben Kingsley as an actor for playing the Mandarin. Well, lo and behold, Ben Kingsley is back in this movie. He has some funny moments, although again, those moments feel Marvel-ish, and that leads me to my biggest criticism of this movie, which is that this is a good movie. It does not need to be a Marvel movie. I have no clue why this movie is connected to the Marvel universe. In fact, the moments in the, when this movie does try to play into the MCU and bring former MCU characters and plot lines back are when the movie is at its weakest. That's like the Ben Kingsley character. Um, and uh, I was prepared to give this movie actually three and a half stars because I had a really good time watching it. And then I watched the post credit scene. Uh, the first one in particular was laughably bad. And again, a reminder that um, this movie shouldn't have been Marvel. All of its Marvel associations uh, make it uh, worse. So I do give it three stars. It's still a very enjoyable movie. It shouldn't have been a Marvel movie is, is my big takeaway. And Aquafina should have been the star. All right. And so more bosses. Let, let's, let's go to Todd next. Todd, uh, you agree, disagree? Where are you at on this one? I mean, I agree and disagree. Uh, but... I mean, for me, the closest thing in terms of mythology to this movie is like Kubo and the Two Strings, which I, I was animated. I think this movie could have been an animated movie as well. But yeah, I mean, Zach hit on some of the like uh, uh, martial arts movies that I was inspired by. The, everything from like Bruce Lee movies to Kung Fu Hustle. There's some John Woo in there. A lot of Yimou Zhang movies like House of Flying Daggers. And the bus fight sequence was like straight out of a Jackie Chan movie. Like he's like using his jacket as to like shield them. And he's like climbing on the walls in order to get away because he's like getting kind of tired. That was like a total homage to a Jackie Chan movie. And I really like the skyscraper fight scene on like the side of the thing. Like that, that I can't believe that we haven't seen that in a Mission Impossible movie or something. Like that was a really cool sequence. But and the quest that they're on like is eerily similar to the Power Rangers movie. Like, I mean... Like, it even kind of looked like similar areas. <laughs> and they are. Ben Kingsley, it's funny to see what the hell he was doing. Like, he's like, that's a weird horse. What's he looking at me for? Like, <laughs> like he, he, had some, he had some really funny parts. Uh, but what I didn't like is that they put Benedict Wong in the trailer to make it seem like it was connected to Doctor Strange. But it really had nothing to do with it whatsoever. It's just because he was an Asian actor. Uh, I don't I don't think Simu Liu is that good of an actor. He's not very charismatic, but more it's more important is his character, and it's a good character. Meyer Zhang is the sister, and I think she is like amazing, and she is obviously the MVP and the breakout star in the movie. Tony Leung is one of the best actors in the world. It's always good to see him. Michelle Yu is great, and I was kind of sad like Zhi Zhi Zhang should have been the mother. Like I I don't know why Ooh, they missed that uh, opportunity. But the problem with the movie is Aquafina. Like the character is boring. And it's so similar to the other stupid sidekick characters in all these movies that is in over their head and like have all the, the funny quips and stuff. Like there's a character in Spider-Man just really similar. I, I, I like there is one of these in every one of these origin stories and she was annoying and which is why the pro I mean, she was the main problem with the movie. But when the end battle comes along, I was kind of upset because I don't really give a shit about dragons. And like, why does all these movies have to like have these like world conquering monsters and bad guys all the time? Can't it just be like a, a like a a father-son fight because i mean it, it was like that was the only martial arts part of the entire like last half hour of the movie was this like cool kind of fantasy-ish uh, fight between the father and the son but up until the battle this was the best mcu movie yet but i got bored during the fights 
and it was like a 45 minutes or something. So unfortunately, it's only like number five for me in the, in the rankings now. But I, it was almost a completely standalone movie, like Zach was saying. It didn't need to be a Marvel movie. And you could watch it out of context and, and not have all the mind-numbing nonsense with 25 movies to, in order just to understand the movie. But the fantasy stuff just kind of ruined it. It's too stupid in the end. But for 90 minutes, I thought it was excellent. So, I mean, it's a high three stars. All right. All right. So three stars from, from Zach and Todd. I'll go next. I'm at two and a half on this one. I, I was kind of, I, I see a lot of what you guys are saying. The, it started out really well. I did like the, what happened. Uh, the bus scene was great. Uh, the, uh, the scaffolding scene. I, I was thinking Todd, I don't think it ever appeared in a mission impossible, but I think it was in rush hour. Rush hour two. Yeah. Rush hour two. Yeah. Yeah. That's what oh, I was yeah, thinking too. Similar, yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, I, I think the, the chemistry between uh, Simu Liu and Aquafina is really good. However, I, I'm with Todd. Aquafina kind of bothered me. And I, I love Aquafina, and she's great when she pops up. But what she can sometimes fall into is she falls into just this, like, one beat thing, and that's all she does. And I feel like she fell into it here, where she just kind of did her thing. And my thing is to, like, make everybody laugh in a serious scene. And I'm just going to do that by, by talking in a way that nobody else is talking. And, uh, and I, I, it just, it just felt off. I kind of had a, a, a similar vibe when I, she voiced the dragon and Ryan, the last dragon. And it was a very similar character of, it was just kind of a, Hey, I'm Aquafina and I'm here. And Hey, this is going to happen now. Whoa, look at that. And it just kind of that, that's just kind of the vibe you get from her at times. And I hate it when she's just asked to do one thing because it, it gets annoying after a while. Uh, I thought that the ending is like as soon as as soon as Ben Kingsley shows up to the end is just like bad. It's just really, really bad. And uh, Ben Kingsley was one of the worst characters in the MCU up to this point anyways. And I even just rewatched Iron Man three recently just randomly he's he's horrible and and he's the one that gets brought back for this and so like he comes back and it's like you just roll your eyes and go come on and then the final battle it's where some of them the the final battle is so is so um just intense this one it's so confusing of what is actually going on it felt rushed it felt like no one no he didn't know how to actually do it and so all of a sudden it's like, oh, oh, it's, it, it's over. Okay. It, how did that happen? Okay. Okay. I, I guess it's over then. I, I mean, it just didn't make any sense. Um, and it, it needed, I, I know sometimes the battle sequences can be drawn out way too much. This one needed a little bit more just so you could understand what in the world was going on. Um, yeah, I, I agree that it, it's kind of a standalone movie, which in some ways it goes back to the start of the MCU because they're kind of starting over in some ways. It goes back to Iron Man. It goes back to to Thor, to to the first Captain America, to Incredible Hulk, where these movies that they were their own movies establishing characters, and then you'd have the post credit scene of like, oh, just reminding you, this is a part of something more. And yeah, there were some familiar faces along the way, but but uh, it, yeah. Uh, it was it was a lot of fun to watch, but there were just too many problems with it for me to give it three stars. 
Adam. Welcome to the Hotel California. <laughs> such a lovely place. Such a lovely place. Okay, sorry. Adam, where are you at with this one? Uh, okay, originally I texted you two and a half stars on our email as well. But talk, listening to Zach and Todd, I'm kind of maybe up to three. Uh, I think this film, because it's an origin story film in the MCU, I think this is one of the more important films leading into the next phase. Granted, we have a Black Widow, and a lot of the stuff coming up is going to have to you rely on us to watch the MCU TV shows. Uh, because I think that WandaVision is the best thing we've seen, followed by Loki So up to this point. Because Loki introduces the big bad guy of the next phase, King the Conqueror, which will make his first appearance in Ant-Man and the Wasp. His character kind of appears in Loki. But anyway, uh, this film, it not just sets up what Shang-Chi is going to be doing next, and it makes me really excited for that second film. It also sets up She-Hulk, the TV show, because Mark Ruffalo, and Abomination, which he makes an appearance in here as well. Tim Roth's character, he will be back in that. And also kind of sets up uh, possibly what's going on next. I also thought Eternals could have been set up a little bit here too. Uh, but I'm with the, the the dragons or whatever. But Or whatever. Um, I I hear what you guys are saying, especially with uh, thoughts on um, being Kingsley's character coming back. Uh, I think a lot of that was redconned with the, the MCU short All Hail the King, which is basically says, no, there's a real Mandarin out there. He's going to come for you. So that kind of ties into that. So you kind of have to watch the short to do that. Uh, what really kind of I liked about the movie was I liked the Aquafina character. I thought that her coming into the, this amazing bow and arrow, a lot, a lot of cool comparisons as this normal person coming in, uh, learning a new ability. I liked the actor who played uh, Shang-Chi. I thought he was really cool. His sister was even more amazing. I liked what they, her setup for possible next films as well. Uh, there's something that didn't quite work for me where it's kind of lower tier. It's like number 17. It's like 16 or 17 on my MCU ranking. Um, I just mean I don't like it because I, I, I do. Admittedly, I'm a, a superhero guy. I like the movies. I enjoy them. I still really enjoyed this one as well. Uh, the ending battle sequence, yeah, it was a little darker and kind of reminded me of like a DC kind of in-fight sequence, like a Batman versus Superman, really dark, kind of confusing at times. I thought, friends, I thought they were going to bring back another comic book character, Fing Fang Foom, which is like a big giant dragon villain for Iron Man. They didn't quite go that route yet, but who knows, that might be set up later. But uh, I really enjoy this one. I think it, if it's a very important movie that gets me more excited for the second part of the bigger story for this character. And I, I know that I don't really know too much about the character, but I know that he is important for what they're trying to do, uh, I guess, going forward. So yeah, <laughs> I'll still stick with a 2.5 for now. I'll probably watch it again and probably change my rating later. I, but you didn't say I, anything I, I, bad I, about it though. Just give it three stars, man. You know, you like it. Okay. Where I'll give it wrong? three stars. Yeah. I'll give all it three right, stars. Right. I'll give it three stars. Because well, it's not, it's not like there's just something like it. It felt, it felt good. Yeah, it, it was a, it was a fun movie. Adam is, Adam you on know, certain <laughs> movies. Nobody sucked, Adam. You should give that thumbs down. Um, Nobody's, nobody, well, no, no, that didn't suck. I, like uh, I just, I, I have to respond to Terry's criticism. Terry, that, that was, a, that was a horrible take. Okay, I mean, you actually made me like the movie more because. I, th I think the movie is really entertaining. I I, I think that from Ben Kingsley on, like that, that's a, I think that's a great climactic sequence. I I love the dragons. I thought that was really cool. And um, yeah, it, it, uh, I, I I don't know about that, but 
like I, I, the movie ha- had me pretty riveted. I mean, I, I, th- I thought it was really fascinating. I, I liked the dynamics of the village. I think it actually could have been quite a bit longer. It could have it could have gone more in depth into the training sequences in the village as they defend uh, defend it from the, uh, Tony Loom. And I just I, I I don't know why where you guys are coming at with Aquafina. Like I don't think she makes or breaks the movie. I, I just really liked her as a character. It's nice to have that presence in the movie. It's nice that she was. I didn't think she was just a side character. She was involved with a lot of the action set pieces, and she seemed like is, is going to play an important role in, in the trajectory of the characters if, if, if there was any yeah. annoying humorous side character it was ben kingsley but you know he was funny for what it's worth I, I i think terry in particular your criticism is way too harsh with this movie I, can i also I mean, say something before oh, go ahead terry i'll let you respond to that no, first before i say that. i mean I, it is it is a fun and entertaining movie but i think every every single one of the mcu movies is fun and entertaining Oh, so, uh, so they, they they all have that that level of fun and entertainment that you could that I could sit and watch. I, honestly, I was going to compare this a little bit to Thor in that it, it's a fun character that I know I'm going to love and appreciate moving forward. But the the setup for him, I don't know if it necessarily landed as well as it could have. Well, I mean, you're not as big a martial arts guy, though. I'm like. I mean, I, I love seeing all the homages and stuff. That's why I love the first yeah, like cool. yeah. hour and a half. I think it's like the best MCU has done the first hour and a half of this movie. But then it's just this dumb dragon shit after that. I mean, yeah, I love, I do like the training sequences and stuff. I, I like the uh, everything at the village, just like not when they actually went to battle. It was well, as that messy not... as the story of him telling the story of the battle right after it. <laughs> I was just, I mean, that, that's the way I felt <laughs> watching it. I also would give the movie thumbs up it, just simply because Marvel, I think, has progressed in the last 10 years from pandering shamelessly to Asian audiences to try to get big release dates in, in China to actually having a much more authenticity with like actual Asian characters. Um, so I, I think in terms of like representation, this movie definitely gets a thumbs up compared to things like Iron Man 3 10 years ago, which were, I think, way tone deaf. Yeah, because that if that yeah, Iron Man three has a lot of problems with, especially with that character who it might have been just an orange. Who knows? The Mandarin is a, a very Iron Man centric character who is of Asian descent. So it's like they really kind of frustrated me on that one. But yeah, I definitely agree with that. It's cool to Thank see all of Asian too. He but is? yeah, he, he, but they changed it to Guy Pierce as being the uh, being uh, being the man, the actual Mandarin in Iron Man three. I've come to appreciate not, Iron Man through a little more on on a, on some rewatches, and maybe I'll do the same with Shang Chi. But yeah, right now I, I, I'm go, I'm sticking with my two and a half. So we've got we've got three stars from Todd and Zach. We've got two and a half from oh no Adam Adam caved and gave it three. So I'm the only one I'm the only <laughs> dick on the podcast giving giving the new Marvel movie two and a half. I, I guess I'm the new Zach. So just hating on hating on comic book movies. So yeah. Anyways, if you haven't seen it yet, it, it it's still in, it'll be in theaters for a while. You can check it out, and we still have two more Marvel movies coming up uh, this year before the end of the year. We've got Eternals from Chloe Zhao and uh, and the new Spider Man movie. So um, we've still got some more to yeah. come. So be yeah. looking for those two. All right, it is now time. That's what you've all been waiting for. Maybe at least it's what we've all been waiting for. The reveal of our top 10 films of all time. Yes, top 10 of all time. Now, the funny thing about this is there's very little drama over what our number ones are. 
I, I, I think we all, we all know what number one on each of our lists is going to be. What's going to be fun is hearing what two through 10 is on each list and, and reacting to that. So we're going to do this as, as just a regular top 10 list that we're not going to rush through this at all. We want to give it the time it deserved because I mean, we're talking about the greatest 10 movies that we have ever seen. So, uh, so it deserves, it deserves the time to actually spend to these films. So no, no more lowing, no, none of that this time. Everyone's going to get a talk for about whatever they want with whatever film that is going to pop up. So here we go. I, I was thinking, and uh, if you guys don't have it in front of you to be able to do it, that's fine. But I was thinking before you reveal number 10, uh, give a recap of a hundred to 11. I got it. And then, and then we'll, and then we'll hop into number 10, just to remind everybody where we've, where we've been before we get to where we're going. Uh, are we all good with that? Just, just like a straight, just like hundred is this, ninety nine is this, eight ninety eight. Are you this. serious? I'm I'm absolutely serious. That's gonna take forever, man. <laughs> I have mine up already. Really? It shouldn't I, take too long. I don't I don't have that up. You don't have it up? Just look on the website. It's up up there already. Yeah, it's on the website. Well, not the not the names. You have pictures of them. I have pictures of them. We really gotta do that. This is gonna take forever. Then then maybe we don't. It's fine if we don't. Oh, I have my So we don't have to. We don't have to, Zach. As what, the one what, editing it, you you get the you get the call. What are we What are we gonna do? No way. No they, way. They, okay. People can go to the website if they want to look. Okay. All right. Then I'll just I'll plug the that. website to plug the website for that. We're at, we're at forty three minutes already. We we gotta move on. Yep. All right. So this is this is uh, paying off uh, our reveal of our top hundred. Go to almostsideways.com. You can see where we've been. You can see 11 to 100 there. Uh, but now it's time to get into our top 10s. Zach, set the tone. Here we go. Number all right. 10. So uh, I rewatched. I didn't rewatch all of my top 10 movies this week, but I rewatched substantial portions of them. So I, I do come in with a, a sort of fresh sensibility, and I did actually change my list a little bit. You pulled an audible at the last second. I did pull an audible. I, I, I told you. Hang that off. Mark it down. So, you know, when Terry says, oh, we all know what everybody's number one is. Well, do we really? I, I don't know. Yes. Yes. We do. Um, well, okay. Maybe we do. But <laughs> my number 10 is a movie that uh, came out in the last two years. Um, it's the most recent uh, film uh, on my top 10 list. And it's a movie that I own the Blu-ray of, and I'm going to own a different Blu-ray of in about three, two or three months. It is Uncut Gems by the Safdie brothers. I can't believe I have this movie higher than Todd. Todd had it 19 um i have it 10 yeah I, I i i think i've said to todd too like eventually we just have to come to grips with that it will be like our number one movies of all time at some point maybe like 2026 maybe is the target date um yeah i mean it's just it's amazing like uh you know rewatching it again so it, it's it's so funny it's so thrilling uh it's so unpredictable there's so many like little details in it like like the scene where they go to like the basketball practice is just, it's hilarious. Uh, the scene where the weekend's performing hilarious. The only reason if, if there's any, I'm not going to say there's any flaw in the movie. However, we didn't talk about this in our deep dive. The movie ends with Kevin Garnett's speech at the end of the movie, which is just a little cheesy. I, I don't know if I I'm rewatching it now for the third or fourth time. I'm not sure if I'm in love with that speech at the end of the movie. It, 
I think the movie deserves something a little better than it. So I'm putting it number 10. Uh, but obviously the, 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 the greatest cinematic achievement since this podcast has been, has, has started. So there you go. So, so That's this, quite a statement. This, yeah. So if we, we can't talk about Fargo, we always have, we'll talk about almost famous and sideways. We got to have like an almost sideways uncut it's a blend of the uncut gems <laughs> segment. Like that's sort of like that's a, that's like almost sideways after dark or something like that, where we just have we like, like we have to do a we have to do a somehow make this happen where we do a commentary of uncut gems as a podcast. Episode. You also realize that the high roller really is the hero of the movie. That's I think yeah. the, the, the another thing that like st- I, I I don't th- I don't know if we named him any of our MVPs, but like he's the hero of the movie. He saves Julia's life. He he's the one that enables everything to happen, and uh, you know he still doesn't know how to work an iPad. But <laughs> at least he knows how to take a shower, I think. Uh, Let's hope. Let's hope. Now, now, did you hear that that Criterion has been added to the 4K release yes. of Criterion? Yes, and there's lots of controversy because now they have a new cover. Like, yeah. they, they changed out the cover. I actually like the old cover. I think a lot of fans... Oh, there goes my lights. That was going to happen at some point. But, uh, yes, I'm very excited for it. it. It is no longer an October release, so it has been pushed back until November. Yeah. Hop on. No, no. See, it should be sound activated. Come on. Turn on. Turn on. Turn on. Hold on. Hold on. Wow. He's got he's gotta go. I think it's motion activated. There we yeah, go. Yeah, it's motion. <laughs> yes. Like uh like at like Adam Sandler's door. Um I have some malfunction <laughs> malfunctioning equipment in my room. That was a good little segue there. Uh, <laughs> that, was awesome. that was perfect. That was perfect. I, yeah, I mean, can't, yeah, can't argue with it. That that's I think that's appeared on. Was it on all your list, Adam? Yeah, it was number forty. So, yeah, so it, it was. There's one that's been on all four. Awesome. Yeah, okay. it should have been probably a little higher on my list, but I, I I love it. I can see over time it going higher and higher. So, anxiety right. inducing. Absolutely, absolutely. Adam, number ten. Okay. All right. So this film, number ten. This is one of the first Criterion movies I've ever watched. From 1948. Thank you, Todd, for introducing me to the Red Shoes. So uh, this film, it, uh, it's crazy. I need to, I need to rewatch this film more. I have to admit, the the Red Shoes for me is one of those movies. It's about a young, uh, kind of up and coming ballerina who's kind of uh, having this really kind of perfectionist director, and it's kind of her battling this this her dilemma of trying to be being perfect at what she does. And it kind of, the perfectionist kind of overtakes a lot of the similarities to other movies that we see nowadays. I think you can see a lot of inspiration that black swan draws from it. I guess you can make comparisons to whiplash too. a whiplash with being the perfectionist thing, but for the red shoes, it is such a great visual effect, um, not visual effects, but the best visual feat. That's what I meant to say. Visual feat. And just not just cinematography, but also just colors it's there's such a great saturation with the colors, especially the red shoes dance. I don't know how they film some of that stuff. It is just a great film to watch. I also Scorsese really loves it too. And watching this one, I just immediately became came embedded in my head. So as I was putting this list together, I just kind of crept up. I originally had it in like the lower teens, but I'm thinking about movies that I've seen multiple times and have kind of played a big. Uh, time in my headspace i gotta put red space give it its credit so number 10 on my list uh is where i'm putting it so uh really great film if you haven't seen it red shoes from 1948 i haven't seen it 
There we go. Great Get on. It was on my list as well. It, yeah. It's a, and you'll never forget it once you watch it. Yeah, I've never seen it either. Mm. Sounds like Perfect. a sounds like a must see. I like a, I like the, a lot of the classic movies that Adam has. More more older movie than than, than I was expecting. Uh, again, I I my other list was it's like Adam Bailey Film School. Yeah, I'm I'm trying. I'm trying to do better. I appreciate. it. <laughs> All right. <There's> some... <clears throat> I think uh, I think I'm next. Let's get it here. So number ten on my list. It has been mentioned. By somebody else already on the list. I think only one other person has had it on there. Uh, it is a Best Picture winner from 20 years ago. We are going with A Beautiful Mind. Uh, this is one of those movies that... Um, when I watched this for the first time, that first time watch experience was so... Uh, just so impactful because I had no idea what really what was going to happen in this movie and if you don't know the twist halfway through that it's all in his mind and he's crazy the first half the movie plays like quite the thriller and you don't know what's going on and then when when all of it comes crashing down and like christopher Plummer shows up as a psychiatrist i didn't know i'm like wait is this is what's really going on and then no movie like flips on its head and because becomes something completely different quite like this does and it, it gives such a brilliant performance with russell crowe ed harris jennifer connelly uh this this movie i mean this is one of those movies i can just throw on and appreciate at any point at any time um it's it's so watchable in so many ways uh i i love i love this movie so uh number 10 and I, I, it was when I looked at my list, like I, I after I saw Zach was going to was going to kind of redo some stuff. I looked at my 10. I'm like, would I change it? No, no. Th these 10 are solidly my top mm -hmm. 10 and a beautiful mind definitely belongs there. So that's my number 10. Zach, I know it was on your list. Yeah, it's my number 21. And uh, I, I deeply love the movie, too. Uh, almost as much respect for it as I do beer. Um, we we deep dived this movie before. Um Neither Terry and I are in love with the last 15 minutes, I think. But oh, I love the, the last 15. I oh, love it. I love it. Ah, that's the thing that's keeping I love me off it. my top 10. That, get, that but, gives that puts a tear in my eye every time his speech. Oh, every it's, time. Uh, it's not great. But I will say there are scenes in the second half of the movie that work in some really unexpected ways. Like I love the scene. First of all, I love the scene when he says goodbye to them, right? That's like my favorite moment mm -hmm. in the movie. It was my favorite scene in our, in our deep dive. I also really like the scene where him and Josh Lucas are now talking as older people and Josh Lucas has attained the, uh, you know, he's head of the department or whatever. And, and, you know, Russell Crowe is, you know, we are taking pills. Right. But, you know, I, Josh Lucas says something along the lines of it, it wasn't a game. It wasn't about competition. I, I, I think that was actually a really cool kind of um, compassionate moment between two rivals that um, again, one of the many charms of this, of that movie is there's a lot of great scenes, not always the theatrical over the top scenes, a lot of kind of quieter scenes work really well too yeah absolutely absolutely i haven't because i wasn't on the deep dive with you guys i hadn't i've only watched this film maybe one time i know for sure one time and i really liked it and it's really good i think it's in my top 10 too i don't think i appreciate it as much as you guys do i will have to definitely do a rewatch because i know i really liked listening to your deep dive of it so it, i think this one movies i definitely maybe watched it kind of earlier on when i was first joining on the website too so i think i would probably appreciate it a little bit more 
now. Well, it's one where you get uh, it, and you have some like this too. When you grow up with a movie, there's a different appreciation for it. Oh, too. absolutely. So, yeah. yeah. I love that yeah. you have the original DVD of it, Terry. I do yes. too. I don't own the Blu-ray. <laughs> and um, I also agree about the theatrical experience. I would say it was a top five theater going moment in my life when I saw it because all I knew about the movie is that it was about some math genius who won the Nobel Prize. Right. I was not expecting the movie to be about mental illness at all. So not just with that twist, but just I, what the movie really ends up being about, which is compassion for people with um, mental illness, it was just uh, riveting to watch. Totally, I never saw. I never saw it in the theaters. I saw it at home uh, on DVD for the first time, and it's. It, and I didn't know. It, I didn't know really what what to think until until uh, she opens up her her uh, her satchel and drops all of the the letters he'd written that he had mm. that he had like sealed. And none of them had been opened. It's like they'd all still been sitting in that mailbox. And, and that's when you go, oh, crap, it is all in his head. And uh, the only the only real reason I don't have it higher is because the last scene. And then also it takes a lot of artistic liberties with that character. I mean, it doesn't even say based on true story. It's based on events in the life of John Nash. Yeah. And if you read more about John Nash, not not always the 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 brightest figure in the world, not always the most shining example of morality. But um, still, the movie is hella entertaining. And I respect that pick, Terry. And then anytime you get Anthony Rapp and Adam Goldberg back together oh, to uh, to BS with each other, it's a good day. Yes. <laughs> All right. Todd, number 10. OK, my number 10 is from 1957. Robert Bresson's A Man Escaped. Ooh. And this is about this guy Fontaine. He's a French resistance fighter in World War II, and he gets captured and thrown in a Nazi prison for espionage, and he's sentenced to death. And the rest of the movie is like him navigating the prison, finding allies, and plotting his escape, eventual escape. It is uh, the best use of sound in the history of movies. It's my number one sound mixing choice of all time. It, the movie is so quiet and puts an emphasis on everything that's off the screen. So you're just like stuck with Fontaine in his cell and not knowing what's awaiting him and but you can hear sort of what's going on and it's just, it's it's just fascinating and breathtaking to watch it, the escape sequence is as good as there is in movies and it's realistic it doesn't overstay its welcome it's really just an efficient powerful movie in the most subtle ways and it, it also is a true story and it's uh the first time I, I watched it originally because paul dano mentioned it as being one of, like maybe his favorite movie and so i i'd never heard of it and i checked it out and i was blown away when i first saw it and i still am every time i watch it it's it's the best prison movie ever. Nice. That's, That's uh, a great pick. Yeah. One of the greatest spoiler titles of all time. No, uh, no I actually <laughs> was going to mention that. I was going like to mention. your show Prison Break. Yeah. Exactly. What's, it, what's it about? It's about breaking out of prison. Uh, I was actually going to mention the Paul Dano thing, too, because I had never heard of this movie until I watched his movie's Criterion picks, because he also. Uh, the movie that Zach put a uh, long summer, like long summer, Brighter summer day. Yeah, that's it. It's <laughs> also, movie, yeah, the long movie. Uh, that was also mentioned in Paul Dano's thing as well. And I was like, Oh, I need to watch this. And now that you mentioned here, I definitely, I don't, this probably might be my next criteria I need to pick up because it's, uh, it just sounds fascinating. It's definitely shorter. And yeah, it's like, <laughs> from what I remember, but I haven't seen it in a while, but it's like, it's a, it's a really clean, like crisp movie. There's nothing extra about it. It's very like to the point. There's no, no, uh, no extravagant 
or uh you know extra anything it's like about you know this guy in solitary confinement basically his plan to escape there's no like larger political message unless you like are reading deeper into the movie brisson was like a very spiritual director you know very oftentimes made movies about you know people in spiritual crises kind of like paul schrader maybe um but yeah i think this is his best movie and i think it's aged really well it's probably it's probably the best prison break movie ever made Unless, of course, you're counting, uh, you know, uh, Lieutenant Frank Drebin's Prison Escape and Naked Gun 33 and a third, which I think might be a little superior, but you never know. <laughs> sure. Of course, of course. There we go. All right. Number nine, Zach. Okay, I like the idea of talking about why we saw these movies. So Paul Dano, huh? That was a lot of credibility. Okay, so my number nine movie I saw because... I watched a YouTube channel. I'm a big fan of the YouTuber um, Horrible Reviews. He's this guy from Belgium who watched, I told Adam about him. Uh, he watches these like gross out, you know, horror movies, like body horror movies. And like he has a series called like the most disturbing movies ever made. It's like a 20 part series. And what's great about it is that, uh, you know, you don't have to watch the movies. He watches them. Yeah. He'll do these little clip shows. But, you know, a lot of these movies I would never want to sit through. Not just not because they're gruesome necessarily, but because they just are really bad. Anyway, <laughs> this was a movie that was randomly on this list. And I had heard of it before, but I was like, hmm, is it really disturbing? And uh it is a disturbing movie, but not in a like gruesome, disturbing way. It's my number one documentary of all time. And it's been mentioned by Terry. I'm finding out that Terry's list has a lot of parallels with my list. It is Dear Zachary, a letter to a son about his father, directed nice. by Kurt Hewin. And uh, yeah, I, again, just a riveting real life story. Um, you know, I, I'm glad I have this movie above A Beautiful Mind because this is all real. There's no fabrication here, right? Um, there is a little bit of like, um, maybe like uh, reenactment over the course of the movie. But, you know, what I love about this movie, it has a great story. It, it, is, it, it is a very sad movie about the director's friend who was murdered by his, his girlfriend. Um, and then they end up ha having a son together. Um, but what I love about this movie is this movie is is a crash course on filmmaking. Okay, how to be a great mm -hmm. filmmaker, how to be a great editor, how to convey passion and energy and enthusiasm mixed with anger and like heartfelt sadness and compassion. Um, this guy pulls out all the stops. I mean, I feel like you know uh, the, the 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 Russians, uh, Eisenstein would have been really proud of a movie like this. I mean, it is like nakedly, blatantly, you know, has an agenda, right? Um, this director does not attempt in any way to hide his his perception of the events that in this movie and his feelings about how these people uh, went about their business. Uh, really, what kind of emerges is, is less a portrait about his friend, but more um, his friend's parents who try to advocate for their grandson, Zachary. Um, it's about reforming uh, laws in Canada, but, you know, abuses of uh, laws all over the place. It's, it's an amazing work. And uh, it, it's overwhelming. It's it's only an hour and a half, but you really feel like um, after watching it, you need to just get up and take a breath for air or something like that. Um, mm -hmm. It's it, it's an amazing documentary, and uh, everybody everybody should watch it. I you know, yeah. it, the only reason it's not higher on my list is because I think because it's a documentary, I, it's it's remarkable. But you know, the the story almost speaks for itself. That that the filmmaking is what makes it amazing. But uh, he had yeah. a beautiful story to tell. What a great movie. No one should tell a story that isn't true. There's so much to learn about true stories. <laughs> about the world. <laughs> about the world. It's an interesting yeah. perspective. <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, yeah, great, great movie. Yeah, I think it's my number three documentary. It didn't quite make my list. It was it'd be in my next hundred movies, but yeah, I mean, in in the age where everyone's looking for the best true crime documentaries, I'm always like, have you seen Dear Zachary? Like, I, I think it's got everything you want in a true crime documentary, and uh, yeah. And I'm also glad that I'm the person that recommended it to everybody. I feel a little yeah. proud about that. And then, but what I was going to say is like, for better or for worse, like a lot of movies, you know, they advocate for nonviolence. They advocate for pacifism and forgiveness. This movie does not do that. Okay. This movie is very much about these people who do not forgive what happened and like, take it or leave it. Like, I, you know, you could maybe personally agree or disagree with that message, but this filmmaker shows why these people feel the way they do. And there's no, there's no ambiguity about it. Um, but you know, it's it's awesome, and I don't know what this guy's done since then, but uh, he is, you know, hopefully him and Todd Field can get out of their bunker together and actually start making movies again. There we go. Yeah, I mentioned this uh, last week. It was my number 13, and yeah, some of the stuff I mentioned, I love how it it's a documentary that starts as one thing and becomes something else, yeah. and never, and never ha in a documentary have I seen the actual filmmaker and narrator so invested and what's going on because he is a character in the story so yeah uh from the very get-go just because of, he was the best yeah. friend of 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 zach or of the, yeah. of the of the guy so yeah and I'll, i take it back a little bit it looks like kurt Keeling has actually directed some episodes of the blacklist so so he's working <laughs> okay getting a go. paycheck out there there we go uh yeah this also was one of i was thinking i was the first one to mention this on the top 100 list um in oregon actually so uh, yeah, this is I kind of embarrassed. I wish that this would have been top 50 film. It is. And I think about it now, do it a couple of years later. I think this is my top 50. This is uh, just a fascinating, everything you guys were saying, is just a fascinating like journey to take because you think it's one thing and you're kind of going along the story and just realizing you're like, I don't know, it's, it's hard not to get emotional listening to this. And it's like, imagine if this happened to you, like how would you feel? And it, I, I don't know if I could be able to forgive them it's, it's tough losing a loved one like that and it's a it's just a, a fascinating way of filmmaking like you said zach so uh, i love that's in your top 10 all right adam number nine all right this one has was mentioned i believe a few weeks ago by todd from gus van sant from 1997 and that is how about them apples goodwill hunting so what kind of cover oh. is that yeah, this is I the mean, 15th anniversary edition on, on the Blu-ray. I don't know. You keep on coming Take up this. with these covers that Look I've never seen. That's the that's yeah, the cover, the, the original cover, and that's the 15th anniversary. They, Sorry for the they, light. They, they, left out the they left Boston <laughs> and went to the moon. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah. yeah. And and your Goodfellas DVD or Blu-ray, it took out all the all the darkness and it put him in in Goodwill Hunting. I know. <laughs> on the back on the back of it, it's like you can see some math uh, mathematics in the background. It's like a bunch of lettering and the and the whiteness there. I don't know. That's weird. <laughs> but anyway, uh, Goodwill Hunting uh, is one of those movies that I I remember seeing before. Uh, yeah, I officially became an almost sideways member, and I really loved it. Uh, I think Matt Damon and Ben Affleck, could, especially Robin Williams, were all just amazing uh, performances here. And I'm not even mentioning uh, Mini Driver too. Uh, everybody in this movie is, I think, is really good. I, I find like a, but like has Zach said this a couple of times. You always go back to watching sequences on YouTube, or you go back and put the movie in and watch a sequence. And I feel like this movie truly has one of the best monologues of all time. That'd be an interesting power ranking. But for Robin Williams, Park Bench with Matt Damon, I go back and watch that sequence every couple of weeks. Uh, it's 
it, it still brings a tear to my eye thinking about it and watching it and because you just seeing that you never know what actual love is and visiting hours don't apply to him. And it's just like this, his whole story uh, talking to Matt Damon and basically saying that he's all on board to help, help him if he's wanting it. And it's just a great sequence. And Robin Williams is one of the best performances of the nineties. I think in it, this whole story and seeing how the film ends and just, you, I kind of had a smile on my face every single time I how the movie ends. Like he's actually going for it. He's not. He's not afraid anymore. Uh, it's just. A, it, I, I really enjoy it. This is one of my favorite Gus Van Sant films. And I haven't. Granted, I haven't seen a whole lot of his movies. I know he's kind of a, a, contra, a controversial filmmaker, but this is. He knocks out of the park with this film, and it deserves to be my number nine. Let alone that one sequence could be even top five for me. So, uh, I love Goodwill Hunting. So number nine for me. Well, I love the monologue that Damon has about why he's not going to join the. That's the NSA or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the movie has a ton of great monologue. How about Ben Affleck's monologue about you know why you know that's the best part of his day, right? I mean, yeah. you can choose any. It's good. Any of those monologues could be in the top five monologues. I I just can't wait to hear the monologues written by Damon and Affleck that are going to come up in the last duel. I mean, there we go. It, it, yeah, it's the next that. thing they've written, so. Yeah. <laughs> I, Nicole Hollison are not exactly known for monologues though, so they're probably those true. characters. <laughs> she she wrote she wrote the female uh dialogue, right? Isn't that what kind of how yeah. it's going? Yeah. Uh yeah, great pick. Great pick. Yeah, I mean that movie's like since Robin Williams' death, I, that movie I think has has grown in stature in people everybody's love of it. But you know, it, it was it was pretty beloved when it came out too and I think it says something that we never even question Best Supporting Actor in 97. It was always Robin Williams, yeah. no matter how much we love Boogie Nights or Jackie Brown or anything else. Like, that was his greatest performance, and I don't think there's really any question about that. Yeah, that's true. Great performance from him. And it's like, you know, you kind of don't for, um, you don't know what you lost until it's gone type of thing. So every time, like, like Keith Ledger and Robin Williams, you think of see movies that they're in, you kind of like, or other actors, of course, and like, man, that guy, we lost such a talent. That would have been awesome to see what they'd be doing now. And every time I kind of think about that performance, it's like, man, Robin Williams knocked out of the park. Uh, so, yeah, he's... And it, it isn't... It isn't just a typical Robin Williams performance either. Like, I mean, there's definitely comic elements to it, but he's not doing impersonations or anything like that. I mean, it's it's a it's a very dramatic performance. It's, it it, sh yeah. it it does maybe more than any other movie shows how great his range was as an actor. Well, he it does impersonate Pudge Fisk. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but there's another like performance I watched this last couple fairly recently for the first time. One hour photo. That's completely like different than anything he's i thought he's done before then you got insomnia like such a such a dramatic turn. <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> okay anyway <laughs> well and it, it it it's also crazy to think that the the narr the narrative behind that movie when it came out was these two no-name up-and-coming actors decided to get together and write themselves a movie and it became goodwill hunting and looking back on it almost 25 years later, it was Affleck and Damon. And so it you you lose the fact that how just what a what a pure raw place this film came from and just a brilliantly refined product it ended up becoming. So and by someone like Van Sant, who every now and then he he makes a film like this that is very approachable, but he's mainly known for for making these kind of out there indie indie just films that nobody that are very hard to access 
just in any way. Yeah. Like Jerry or The Last Days or <laughs> I mean Elephants a little more, but I mean that yeah, anyways. All right. Number nine on my list. All right. It's about to get real now. All right. Number nine on my list was my number one of the decade when we did the top of the 2010s inception okay so i i mentioned when we did our top 10 of the decade or our top whatever we did of the decade that it even surprised me that inception ended up being number one and i'm surprised now that it's number nine but I've probably watched it all the way through maybe five or six times now. And when you have a film like this, that is, I mean, it, it's so mind bending and that's just the purpose of it. And, and this is Christopher Nolan at his absolute best. And you can still watch it and still debate with yourself what actually is going on at the end. And, and like you, I still don't know what the end, what's going on at like what the ending means. And I love that about this movie. And then just the idea of going inside in a dream, inside a dream, inside a dream. I mean, it is the the layers, literally the layers it puts in this movie are just so cool. And I, I mean, Christopher Nolan has spent the last decade trying to recapture what he did in Inception and has failed miserably with Interstellar and Tenet. And okay. now Ouch. you and, and now Ouch. you have uh and because Inception did it so perfectly and you don't, you're not, he's not going to get any better than that. And it, it is just a brilliant film. Um, and, uh, and I, I love it. I just love, love Inception. So, and even if you, even if you like those movies, it's not better than Inception. I mean, in Inception, he, he hit his apex at Inception and not, and Batman doesn't necessarily count because those, those are Batman movies. Those aren't Nolan movies. Those are Nolan Batman movies. That's a different category. But if you're talking a Nolan movie, he's not going to get better than Inception. Well, and I think it goes back to the screenwriting because he, you know, obviously he's a visionary director, but in Inception, it's like the one movie of the last 10 years that you actually can follow and make yeah. sense. Yeah. Yeah. And yet, yet and it's yet still, still super, super complex. It's complex for sure. And it doesn't, it's not necessarily, it's not like, you know, just an achievement to even try to understand it, like Tenet, right? Uh, you actually get into the story and, um, it, it, you know, it is confounding, but in a really kind of fun and interesting way. Um, I agree with a lot of, I, I don't have it in my top top 100, but I can't disagree with a lot of the points that you made, Terry. And uh, yeah, it's a really enjoyable rewatch too. I just, what I don't like that Christopher Nolan does in the last 10 years is his, his movies become video games and they become set pieces for different locations around the world. And this movie kind of started that. I feel like once they get to like the fourth level when Leo's like in that ski resort or whatever, then it feels like a video game. But before oh, that... But it was... The whole thing with, with the music and, and, and just the, the score of this too and how the whole score is just is just the the Edith Piaf song just like slowed down and like that beat is driving everything that's going on in the music and oh uh, it's just it's just so cool yeah it's so cool yeah I Hans, remember Hans Zimmer go, music is great go ahead yeah Adam I remember going to see this in theaters with my brother and just having a conversation piece in the parking lot afterward and I think that is some of the most memorable conversations you can have especially when a movie can have not just leaves you 
at the theater when you get up, but continues in the parking lot and continues the next day. Uh, it's a very awesome choice to have there. Like I mentioned, it's my honorable mention for my top 25 of the decade. Uh, it's a it's a great movie. I think that um, other than the Batman movies, it is one of my favorite Nolan movies. The cast uh, is extraordinary from Leo to Joseph Gordon-Levitt, Tom Hardy, Elliot Page, all the actors that, that I haven't even mentioned. It's, it's Everything works in that film. And Nolan's just doing Nolan things. I, I, I hope he doesn't get into like the Shyamalan era. Shyamalan era where it's kind of like I got to do a kind of a, 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 a trick thing to trip your mind. I just want him to tell amazing stories. He doesn't have to, he's such a good director that I don't want him to get into the habit of just doing like a, a weird technique like he did in Dunkirk with time and then Tenet. I like, I like Tenet and so I don't necessarily agree with that kind of dig, but I, I get where you're coming from on that. Uh, I just want him to get in the same habit and routine of just, I have to do something different with the filmmaking style. He can tell kind of straightforward stories too because he's just that kind of a director well what i meant with that is he's trying to find his next inception and he's never oh, gonna yeah. find no. it no one i and, get yeah absolutely yeah. and you and you had a good point too of, of the cast in this too i mean you didn't mention killian murphy didn't mention tom barry oh, yeah. you didn't, didn't yeah. mention Michael ken watanabe Kyle. uh yeah. what yeah michael kane michael kane marion cotillard <laughs> i mean yeah. you, the, the the cast is insane in this movie and they all they, they're all perfectly cast too Perfectly, say, perfect team players. Perfect something team players. else I, I love about Inception that kind of goes, like everybody talks about all the special effects and all that, but like I love the idea that to truly persuade someone to do something, the idea has to generate on their own, or at least has to give, give off the idea that they're the ones who came up with the idea. I think about that a lot when I'm trying to persuade someone to think the way I'm thinking. Now, if I'm trying to persuade Adam to like give thumbs up to a movie, <laughs> it doesn't necessarily have to be his idea. He just has to listen to me, but it's better if it's his idea first. Well played. Well played. My, uh, Todd, why are we wrong? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I don't really like when Nolan does Nolan movies. I mean, I, I don't like The Prestige at all. I don't like... Neither do uh, I. That was, that was I don't like Interstellar at all. Neither do I. I, mean, I, think, I think Inception is good it's the best of him doing that but at the same time i'd rather see him you know do another memento or insomnia or something like tell a more grounded story because he is a really good storyteller he just doesn't the need following all the big stuff yeah and following is good yeah all right insomnia uh, would be a great one too underrated insomnia is yeah. my favorite Nolan movie. <clears throat> yeah. god number nine i'm sticking in 2010 and I'm going with the best movie of the 2010s, and that is The Social Network, David Fincher. Uh, Get it. The, it's, I mean, I, the first time I saw this was there was a tasting before a midnight showing, and this is not the movie you normally do that before, but it made it even better. Like, I don't know. I mean, obviously the movie is about Mark Zuckerberg creating Facebook and the legal battles and stuff, but it's, it's just this, like, breathless movie and one of the best screenplays ever written it's by, by Aaron Sorkin, of course, my number four adapted screenplay of all time. But the tone is different than any other Fincher movie, but this is his masterwork. It, it packs so much into this movie and really could have been a lot longer, like a few hours longer, probably, if it wasn't told with that Sorkin tempo. And like everyone's talking so fast, but they sound so intelligent. The, the words are just so crisp because of, of how it's put together by, by Fincher. And Eisenberg is astonishing. It's the best performance he can ever give. Uh, and you know, it thrusts Andrew Garfield and Rooney Mara into the consciousness. It's yeah, I mean, it's it's like not even close. It's the best movie of the 2010s. It's endlessly rewatchable, and it's an important movie as well because you see, like, I mean, it's the new movie about greed and journalism and friendship. It's like the modern day 
all the presidents matter, Citizen Kane or something. It's more relevant now because seeing what Facebook is and how important it is to everybody and seeing how it was formed and everything. It's just it's a fascinating document of our times and a movie that yeah. will probably be studied in the future. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a it's a movie that I, I could I could watch right now and I wouldn't I wouldn't have a problem. Will yeah. will twenty ten go down as one of the greatest years of film of all time? I mean, just looking at it here, you, you've mentioned you've mentioned Social Network. I've had three 2010 movies in my top 100. Um, yeah, me too. Did you, Todd? Did you have Toy Story three in your top 100? No, no, but you definitely considered it. Yeah. I mean, there's there's five Animal movies. Kingdom. Oh yeah, Animal I, Kingdom. There's another one. I had Drive, Drive Blue Valentine, Whiplash. Well, no, 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 no. Whiplash just, no, is 2014. No. Yeah, Whiplash 2014. Drive is 2011. Oh, 2010. Sorry, my bad. I misunderstood what you're saying. <laughs> I, I mean, we're, well, we're talking. We're talking what, like six movies that are that could be considered all-time greats. Mm-hmm. I mean, that that's that's impressive. It, it it was a big year. It's also a great DVD cover because it doesn't say the title of the movie anywhere. Oh yeah, I, that's the same one. Yeah, <laughs> that's a good point. Great. Yeah, I like The Social Network, too. I I believe it probably is David Fincher's best movie, and it definitely should have won Best Picture that year. Yeah. I guess the issues that I have with it, I sort of want to push back on Todd's idea that it's aged well. I, I, I don't know. Like I feel like people under the age of 25 who think about Facebook would not associate it with what that movie is about. Um, Facebook has become much more ubiquitous in our culture, and, and in ways that, to be fair to the movie, it's not like Aaron Sorkin should have predicted it. But it's just, I don't know, I, I feel like, you know, the movie tries to be very cutting edge, and it, but it fails to be prescient about what Facebook ultimately became in terms of, like, politics. I think the other, the other issue that I have with it is, Loki, I like the trailer more than the movie. And, and I, can't, I can't really say that I, you know, I can't love the movie if I think the trailer's better. It's the most iconic trailer of, of this decade as well. Yeah, it's a great trailer. I, I'll put my two cents in here, too. I remember sitting in the theater seeing like oh god a facebook movie really what if like did we have to make a movie about everything and then watching it just like completely changed my mind maybe i'm because i'm <laughs> and zach didn't tell me to like it or not like it but uh, no uh, I, I remember i still have hand covers bruise like that the opening of him walking back to his dorm after the the bar in the mid, beginning of the movie and that song just like it's still so captivating it just it's just a couple beats and it's it's exhilarating. It's a, it's a fantastic score. It is my top 102. Uh, yeah, it's it's a great film. I, I think that Eisenberg and Social Network should have won awards uh, for the best of their categories too. It's, just, it's a great film. David Fincher's best work there too. And um, yeah, I'm great pick, Todd. Can't say enough about that one. That's a good one. I, I'm surprised you guys didn't do a deep dive of it last year. I think we tried to we say that, that 10 years is is was too new to do a deep dive. So. Unless it's Uncut Gems. Unless it's Uncut Gems. <laughs> I'll, I'll say, it, I would love to do a deep dive of the social network. I would totally Yeah, that'd be, be fun. It, it's, it's my number four of 2010, and mm-hmm. which means it's behind the three movies that appeared in my top 100. So uh, that's it, it, it definitely is, is a great movie, for sure. All right, moving on to number eight. Zach. All right, my number eight movie does not come from 2010. However, it does come from a few years before 2010, um and it's a movie that terry and i both love i don't know if we ever saw it together i don't think we did maybe we did i think Um, we did once maybe uh and uh we do know that when it came out uh we were listening to the music quite a bit from it 
And uh, apparently Glenn Hansard and Marquetta Yerglova even came to Portland, but we somehow missed them. I don't know how. Uh, the movie is directed by New Orleans Saints kicker John Carney once. And uh, it's a movie that um, I think on previous iterations of my top 100 list was not nearly in my top 10, not even close to my top 10. Um, I think sometimes I've dismissed it, or at least early on, I sort of dismissed it as just this kind of you know fun music movie that really I remember more for the music than I did the movie. But watching it these last few years, um, it's kind of like Dear Zachary in the sense that it's it's sort of basically like filmmaking 101. I mean, I love how the aesthetic, it's the, it's the total opposite of Dear Zachary in the sense that there's no heavy editing in this movie. It looks like it was it was made for about $14. I, you know, and it's so unrefined. It What I love about it, I rewatched it this week. I love that it doesn't know how good it is. And I think there are a lot of indie movies today that make that mistake where they they, they think they're really good, and but they want to be sort of, you know, uh, uncompromising or they don't want... This movie has no clue how good it is. Uh, and it has no clue how good the music is. And I think that the, the, the perfect metaphor for this movie, which has now become my favorite scene in Once, is the scene where they first go to the recording studio and like the guy, you know, he's like, oh, he hears bands all the time. You know, he kicks back, I think puffs a cigarette. It's like, oh, who, who are these people? And then Glenn Hansard sings his song and blows them away. And it begins this great recording sequence, uh, recording session sequence. I don't know. I, I, I love the movie. I think it's captivating. I think it, it, it shows you that you don't need to have a huge budget or great actors or even legible, uh, intelligible dialogue. I mean, there's dialogue in this movie that I, I don't know what exactly they're saying. Um, <laughs> and I don't know if, the, if this wonderful old DVD has subtitles. I don't think it does. But um, it's just, it, it's an amazing movie uh, that the last uh, sequence of this movie, when they, it, it's known for falling slowly, right? That's the song that everybody remembers from it. It's a song that won the Oscar for it. And, uh, you know, the way that that song is played at the beginning of the movie versus the way it's played at the end, and it kind of shows the progression of these two people, their relationship, that last shot at the end of the movie, uh, the crane shot, which is uh, just an amazing, beautiful uh, sequence. I mean, bravo. It, it, it gives you, I think, you know, Spielberg said he saw it and it gave him more inspiration in 90 minutes than he had had, you know, in the last few years or something like that. It's, it's, that, it's that kind of movie that makes you wake up and, and want to live. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's just a wonderful experience, especially if you are, you know, a teenager or someone in your 20s. I think it is, is a profoundly uh, moving uh, movie that I think, you know, wakes you up to the world. So number eight is Once. I don't think Terry would disagree. Not at all. Not at all. The real question is, what's the best song in Once? That that's harder to pick out. Uh, on my favorite, my favorite song is "When Your Mind's Made Up," the song yeah. that convinces the, the the record studio. Yeah. The the yeah the recording guy to to listen in. That that's my favorite song. But I mean, "Say It to Me Now" is probably my favorite that's in the movie. Mm, but leave, yeah. "Leave" is the best song on the record. "Leave's brilliant." Well, as and well. "Leave" opens the movie. Not "Say It to Me Now." No. Oh, "Leave" is like. See, okay. Leave has like like a five seconds or something. He's singing on his bed or something, but yeah, not in the movie really. Lies is awesome. Also, mm -hmm. I I well then this sounds like Marquette or Globus sings. The, the if, hill. If you want me in the hill? Yeah, mm -hmm. great, absolutely great. Best best sequence ever involving someone going to a store to buy a battery. <laughs> there we go. Number one on that power ranking. Uh, there we go. Yeah. Uh, 
I've only seen this movie once, and I absolutely love it. I need to rewatch this one again. And uh, yeah, I, I remember having such a great time with it. I kind of enjoy. He also the director also did Begin Again or something. Somebody's associated. Yeah, with both Begin movies, Again. He, he directed Begin Again, which tried so I, to capture the magic of this movie and failed pretty pretty. It badly. was like once with a budget and it lost all its charm. A absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I, I like it. Lost Stars. Yeah, that's a good song. But anyway, uh, but the once was I. It's, it's a once in a lifetime film. I think it's it's a great uh, little story here, and I I love the music, and it's worth a rewatch on my part. So, Isn't it better when you know? I mean, maybe this is corny to say, but like when you're broke and you have no money, and you're just star you're a starving artist, you know, like that is it's so much better than when you have all all the resources, you know. Like, there's no way that they thought this movie would ever get recognized by the Oscars. Are you kidding me? Like, mm -hmm. I, I love that, you know. And there's a, there's a purity to that that is really authentic and earnest in this movie that I, still holds up well even with how big the movie has gotten the last fifteen years. Yeah. I know John Carney since also directed Sing Street, which I know a lot of people really love. I have not seen Sing Street yet, but um, I, I know it's got a good reputation. So, all right, Zach. No, Zach nope. just talked. Adam, number eight. All right, this is the one I was interested in the conversation after I talk. So, from 1998, directed by Tony K, and that is American History X with Edward Norton. And Edward Furlong. Okay, uh, so movies that kind of make you feel kind of dirty watching. Uh, I think American History X. Uh, fantastic performance from Edward Norton. I can think we can we can't really argue that. I don't think uh, the curb stomp sequence is a, a haunting, dark sequence, and I think the bold boldness of being in black and white is fantastic. I think it's a good kind of conversation piece where it. Black and white is the way of thinking of things. Um, there seems to be no gray area. I, I like the journey that Edward Furlong kind of makes, and Edward uh, Norton makes here too. Um, it's a, a, a comfort. Uh, it's a movie that definitely makes you feel uncomfortable. It's one that I have a hard time rewatching, but I think it's a very important film uh, to to have people kind of look inside themselves and realize why am I thinking the way I'm thinking about people and uh, i think micro history x is one of those movies that i'm not, not going to return on a lot i'm not going to go back and rewatch but it's one of those movies i think i think this is one of my favorite like not my favorite but one of those important filmmaking experiences or film make uh, film movie experiences i think that's american history x it's a, it's a powerful film i think in uh, american history x number eight on my list yeah i had a pretty high too i mean yeah, it's an, it's an experience watching it. I think it's actually a lot more rewatchable than you're letting on. But it, I mean, it's not necessarily, but it is about obviously the subject matter that is really uncomfortable. And like, yeah, some sequences are pretty disturbing to watch. But overall, it's a really good rise and fall kind of kind of arc for the for the characters. And I, I don't know. I, I think it's brilliantly written. I think it's one of the best edited movies I've ever seen. And yeah, it's I, I, I mean, American History X will never get old to me. It's it's a great, great movie. I think I've only seen it once all the way through and I don't remember a ton about it. I remember images from it, but to I need to watch it again to really give it a fair assessment on, on where it belongs. Yeah, my experience is similar to Terry. I remember giving it three stars. I would love to rewatch it given, you know, the rise of Nazism in this country the last five years. I think I think that would be really resonant. And I don't think anybody would disagree now that uh, Edward Norton should have won the Oscar that year. 
that yeah. that was a huge oversight. Whether you love the movie or don't love it, his performance was clearly the best in that category. It's kind of a miracle he got nominated because the movie was really mentioned nowhere in any other awards. So it it was the requiem for a dream of that year. It, it, you know, I'm guessing a lot of voters didn't watch it because they just didn't want to. You know, the content not scared them. <laughs> yeah. But if they had bothered to watch it, they would have. You know, and and they were maybe. You know, today's voters would recognize the greatness of that performance. All right, number eight on my list is a movie I own, but I don't have it here. It's in my classroom because I show it to my class um, like every year. Ah, and so there's a couple it. movies I just keep in my in my room. And this is one of them uh, from, let's see here, where, where is it from? It's from 1936, Modern Times. Uh, my, nice. my favorite Charlie Chaplin. And it, it is... It, you could it's called really Chaplin's last silent film even though it's not a hundred percent silent it's probably his goofiest movie uh, in in that era but I think also one of his more profound as through the goofiness he's able to to give this commentary on society at the time uh, I mean it opens with a shot of, of of sheep being herded into the pen and then slowly uh, fades into a shot of uh, a businessman leaving leaving the train station going into their going into their place of work I, I it, it gives a very definite commentary on on things that are happening he gets a job and five minutes later after he gets a job is his uh the workers go on strike uh, and this is happening in the middle of the great depression and the, the commentary he has on the working class and uh and everything that they were going through and uh uh, while also telling a brilliantly hilarious story at the same time, and then you have then you have the the um, the the love story, if you want to call it a love story, it's kind of it kind of feels more pure than that. Uh, but between him and and the the girl played by Paula Goddard, uh, it, it's just it, it's just brilliant. I I love this movie. I could watch it over and over and over again, which is one of the reasons why I show it to my class because. It, it, I, I see it as like it, it's that gateway. It's like if you if you don't think you're gonna like silent movies, watch Modern Times, and uh, and so it's brilliant. It's brilliant. So it's my it's my number eight movie. Yeah, big Chaplin fan. Uh, I still think obviously on my list it did appear in Modern Times is great. Uh, the Kid is my personal favorite, but I can't argue with the brilliance of Modern Times. A lot of good. Uh, commentary there as well and this is one that i haven't shown my daughter yet because we only ones we've seen together is the kid in the circus i think she might appreciate it too uh those ones are geared really kind of towards kids that maybe she's more interested in but i think modern times i should give that a shot i think she would probably uh, at least sit down through a half of it at least that's uh, more than anything so <laughs> we'll okay, take a how, look. Do you, how do you explain your middle schoolers the cocaine sequence jerry yeah what's, you know I, I, just kinda, substance, Mr. I, I just kind of let it let it slide I, <laughs> some of them get it, some of them don't, and I just kind of leave it at that. But uh, yeah, no. The other thing I was gonna say is it, it also features one of the most iconic songs of the last century, and that's "Smile." Um, and it is it, it's brilliant, and it, it has the the melody is in there, and someone else put lyrics to it later on. Then and, and some of the lyrics are straight from the the uh, the cards from modern times, and it, it's a brilliantly beautiful song too. Cool. All right. 
No arguments Todd. there. Yep. Todd, number eight. My number eight comes from 1960. It's Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. Ah. And uh, this is Hitchcock's masterpiece. I, it's obviously about Norman Bates in the Bates Motel. Norman is the operator of a hotel, and he's creepy and strange. He loves taxidermy, and he's got mommy issues, and he's a serial killer. Um, what can you say about Psycho hasn't been said? It's like, I don't know, we all really agree that it was one of the best um, editing Oscar snubs on all of our power rankings. And it's uh, for me, it's number four on my sound mixing list, I guess. But uh, it's it's terrifying to watch this day. And, and just to think you can off the main character like a half an hour in and have it even become more iconic is kind of, I mean, it, it's brilliant. I think it's the last of like great movie that didn't need to be in black and white that was in black and white. And I've never really had this as my top Hitchcock movie before, but I'm like addicted to everything Norman Bates. Like I watched the sequels and the prequel and they're all genuinely good. Bates Motel was one of my favorite TV shows when it was on. I mean, I, I, I I'm obsessed with Psycho. It, it, it's, it's something that, I mean, it would, it was, there was a, a time when this was on like every day on some channel and I would just sit there and watch it. It's just beautiful to look at and it, and it is, it's terrifying, but it's fascinating at the same time. And Anthony Perkins, I try to watch all this stuff because he is one of the great unsung actors of the last hundred years. And yeah. I can watch it anytime. There we go. Good I call. think I just put up onto the website a screwball comedy from the writers of Naked Gun that you watched that was directed by Anthony Perkins. Is that right, Todd? Yes, that is that is true. That's, that's, <laughs> I watched it because it was directed by him. And yeah, the, the also the writers of the Police Academy movies. <laughs> yeah. I just yeah. It's funny. Is I just watched a movie with Janet Leigh in it from 1951 called Angels in the Outfield. There we go. Nice. There we go. So she was pretty good in that one. But uh, I, what I will say is Merlot. So I will talk about this later. <laughs> All right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Zach, any comment? Oh, uh, you know, I always like to show my high schoolers the shower sequence, and some of them think it's lame, and that's when I know they're lame. <laughs> yeah. If you, if you don't like the shower sequence, I can't help you. I mean, it's... It's one of the greatest sequences. They made a whole documentary just about that sequence. I mean, come on. Yeah. Yeah. It's filmmaking at and the a, best. And a movie about like the Anthony Hopkins movie, pretty much about that sequence too. Yeah. And Gus Van Sant made a shot for shot remake about the film too. There we go. Maybe not shot for shot yeah. in that scene, but yeah. Well, there, there's, <laughs> a, there's a, okay, I won't do it. Never mind. Anyway. <laughs> All right. Zach, number seven. Okay. Number seven. Uh, so it's a movie that um, we've talked about a lot, and maybe our podcast is named for it. Is 2004's Sideways. This was always going to be my top 10. Today I decided it's number seven. Who knows? Maybe tomorrow will be number five, maybe number nine. I don't know. It needs to be my top 10. I'm not going to say too much about it because we talk about it every episode, um, except to say that um, I don't know. It, maybe it's not. I mean, it's profound, yes, and it's deep, yes, and it's great. So, yeah, yes. not, not a whole lot more to say. And uh, Todd's going to probably Merlot me. So. Yeah, I'll, I'll talk about it in a little while. Well, yeah, I think, I think we've all talked about it at this point. So Yeah, that's my yeah. last 10, too. So. Best, best bartender in movie history. Don't, uh, Gary is absolutely a bartender. <laughs> he is I in agree. movie history. I agree. He is in movie history. True. <laughs> All right, Adam, number seven. All right, number seven, we're going to go Best Picture winner, 1991, Jonathan Demme's 
the Silence of the Lambs. All right, that, so yes, that done. is a cool DVD cover. That's, that's the Criterion cool. right there. That's the Criterion that's awesome. right there. Cover. That's awesome. Blu-ray, yeah. Yeah, so Silence of the Lambs, uh, I, have a, I had just actually last night I had a friend over for dinner. Uh, good old friend, we have opened a bottle of Chianti. You had a friend nice, for pop. dinner last night? <laughs> anyway, uh, really bad impersonation. But yeah, this is a, it's a great movie. I, I, I'm i I'm kind of the, the quote-unquote horror fan. I like my horror films, especially some of the, the more classical ones. And uh, The Silence of the Lambs is one of those movies. It's it's a kind of you're known. You, you know Anthony Hopkins as uh, Hannibal Lecter, but you're also forgetting Buffalo Bill. As well, and there, and Jodie Foster gives a fantastic performance there too. And as little things about it, it's just it's really creepy. You can kind of pick up little things here and there. And I, I just one of those I thoroughly enjoy. One of those ones that, that I, or I think, is some of my favorite horror films. I think of Silence of the Lambs. So I kind of had to put it in my top ten, and it was kind of no doubt about. It. I think the the previous iteration, I think it actually appeared lower on my list, but I don't know. That's I think it was something that kind of sticks. A movie that sticks with you a little longer. And I've seen this countless number of times. Uh, two, so I got to put it at number what number is this? Number seven? Yeah, number seven. So, sounds a lot. Probably a little higher than most people, but it's my list. So, yeah, whatever. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. You can do whatever you want. <laughs> Definitely yeah. getting some good serial killer representation on these top 10 lists. Yeah, that's that is true. true. Just wait. No, okay. <laughs> Yeah, I had I had Silence of Lambs on my list, and I think I mentioned when when we brought it up before. I think Silence of the Lambs might be the better movie, but the better story is Red Dragon. That's the best story, and I uh, that. Yeah. and um, Silence of the Lambs might be the better made movie though. Yeah, not mine. Not Manhunter. Not Manhunter. That kind of butchers the Red Dragon story, but the yeah. the film Red Dragon is very very good. But um. Out of respect, I Silent Slams made my list and Red Dragon was just off. Yeah, Silence of the Lambs has for me, I don't know. It I think it was on my top one hundred. I don't think it is anymore. I think after we did our deep dive, I I listed as the LVP in that movie the guy who's like, Oh my god, they got to Jim or whatever. That guy <laughs> needs to be in a different movie. That is horrible acting. <laughs> that actually kind of tanks uh, the movie significantly for me. Uh, but other there than that, go. it's a great movie. Good, good, good. All right, number seven on my list. Another Best Picture winner from the 90s. Uh, it's one you can't really argue with whenever it pops up on lists like this from 1993. Schindler's List. I mean, what can you say? This is a movie that it feels like it felt like a classic like the day after it came out. Um, it felt like it was going to be a movie that was going to be talked about and and discussed forever, and there's a reason because it is it is such a an important movie, such a well made movie, uh, such a well acted movie. Whether you're talking about Liam Neeson or Ray Fiennes or Ben Kingsley or any of the countless people that uh, make up the the uh, prisoners in the concentration camp, it is it is just a it's a beautiful, beautiful movie, and it's it's Spielberg at his best because he he's able to be raw yet still have his his poetic uh, his poetic side shine out in a in a way that and in a balance that he had has never achieved since and had never achieved before. 
Um, and then when you add in the, the content matter and how well he was able to give respect to everything that that was, stood for, it, it unbelievable movie. And it, it's the ultimate out of respect. Schindler's List has to be talked about when you're talking about the greatest and probably most important movies of all time. It, it, it has to be there. So that's my number seven. Yeah. Another great pick. It's on my list. Um, did has any director had a better like year in filmmaking than Spielberg in '93? Like he had Schindler's List and Jurassic Park. The best yeah, picture be the most... too. Oh, who? Or Spielberg Or Victor Fleming in '39? Oh, two. Okay, but, yeah. Okay, yeah. well, good. I'm but, glad, glad there's but maybe, more. Maybe <laughs> maybe no one with a more diverse year than Schindler's List and Jurassic Park. <laughs> I mean, to, to show the, the range that Spielberg can have when he's on top of his game is that, that that's that's all you need to know right there. Yeah, very true. All right. Uh, Todd, number seven. My number seven has been mentioned before. It is from 2004, Kill Bill Volume 2. There we go. Directed by uh, Quentin Tarantino. And... Uh, when I, the first time I watched the movie, I honestly thought it was the best movie I'd ever seen. Like, I, I usually don't separate the two, but they're like different genres and like they're so unusual in how they get their thrills and payoffs. But volume two is just better. I, it's a, I don't know, it, it has a way of subverting your expectations with how bloody and how brilliant volume one is. And then there's little death or action in the movie of Kill of Volume Two, but it's more observant and you get get to know the characters more you have like things like bill just like laying there or sitting there with his like playing his flute by the fire telling stories to beatrix and it's just like hypnotic to watch and everything i expected from the movie was out the window and it was done in a way that i will forever be grateful for because it's just it's absolutely rewatchable with or without the first one and as a saga i think it's one of the great screenplay achievements of all time if i'm being 100 percent honest it's probably top to bottom my favorite movie and uh yeah, Kill Bill Volume 2. I mean, we've talked about it before, but yeah, it's never hurts to do it one more time. <laughs> Is that on every right. list now? No, I don't I think Adam had it. Adam. You don't have it on your list, Adam? So for Kill Bill, I it's one of those movies I think I've seen once or twice. I, I, I don't know why it's not higher up. It's kind of like middle Tarantino, but again, I it's one of those ones I saw way after the fact of it. I don't know why I haven't gone back and rewatched it. Uh, it's one of those ones I, I definitely need to, especially I feel I feel embarrassed that it's off my list. You you need so. you need to go back and watch that whole bloody affair. Okay, then I will uh, then I will make a proclamation that we'll have a daily notes episode of me revisiting Kill Bill and Kill Bill. There we go. There we go. Okay, good call. There we go. And I also like how you've been putting all your movies behind you. While yeah, I'm, I'm gonna. I think I'm gonna need to go higher on this on after this one, or else yeah, my head's gonna be in the way. Uh, yeah. Take that. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> there we go. All right. So that is our number sevens. Now to Zach for number six. Okay, number six. Uh, it's a little movie that I've seen more than any movie ever made. We deep dived it, but I still love it. And wasn't that is Apollo first, thirteen. Wasn't that our first deep dive? Almost it was definitely famous. one of our first. Yeah, it was. It was first. Or it was, yeah. Yeah. Apollo thirteen was second, and okay. then it was yeah. Then a beautiful mind, I think. Yeah, so I've seen Apollo 13 more than any other movie. I don't remember if I saw it in a theater or not, strangely. I want to say maybe I did. I don't know. But uh, definitely been a part of my life for the last 26 years. 
Um, and uh, it never fails. Some years I watch it and I'm like, oh, it's you know, a little corny. Other years I'm like, well, this is pretty gripping. I think I just have to have it in my top 10. Um, but, you know, I, it makes me sound lukewarm to it. I, I, I love it. I mean, it's a great movie about the message of, you know, uh, spirit and collaboration. And I mean, the Ken Mattingly character, I rewatched rewatching it this week. Like, I, you know, like that guy could have just said, you know, screw you. Like, I'm just going to sleep in at my hotel and keep watching Dick Cavett and, you know, s- you know, screw you. But uh, you're no, not he, dead. He, he's not dead. Um, <laughs> upset about some guy bringing nylons of Hershey bars to the moon when it should have been him. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it, it's, it's classy. I mean, we've had definite, some definite Ron Howard representation on this list. And, you know, these are the two best movies that Ron Howard has ever done or could ever do. Um, and some people, you know, say, you know, a little bit sentimentalized, a little bit tacky at the end, but you know, I, I think it's a, it's a amazing story. And the fact that everybody knew what the ending was, and he's still able to generate this sort of suspense, um, is, is pretty remarkable. And then, you know, like the, 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 the rocket launch scene, uh, just watching that again, it's like, they didn't have to do that. You know, like there's a cut in this movie that goes to them in outer space and it ends up being Marilyn's dream, but they could have just cut to them in outer space but no i mean this movie had the time and the detail and the precision to actually show uh, this 10 minute sequence of the rocket launch to really get in the viewers minds how amazing and awesome a rocket launch uh, truly is uh bravo you know that's the kind of attention to detail that i think a lot of filmmakers and frankly a lot of like studios wouldn't really go for you know let's let's make let's blow 40 million on a rocket launch scene um but this this does it better than any movie and uh i'm you know, it, it's great. Great performances, great everything. You can't go wrong with it. Yeah, yeah. I think I think this is when when Zach and I knew we were going to be friends. Was when uh, was when we we realized we both loved Apollo thirteen in college. Like I, I remember, it was sometime uh, near the end of our first year at college, and we were talking. And I was like, "Wait, what? What's your favorite movie of all time?" And I said, "Apollo 13. and he went, "Wait." Really, I love Apollo thirteen, and and from then on, we've been we've been great friends. Like it, it was it was that movie, and and so I think my favorite part was when we we bonded over being able to quote the uh, Sergeant Bilko trailer that plays at the beginning of the VHS, the VHS. tape. Yes, I think when they do a uh, a movie about the making of the Almost Sideways podcast, the behind the scenes of it, it Walter Cronkite's voice should start it, inspired by the events of the late. President Kennedy. <laughs> there we go. Almost sideways. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's kind of funny. The last two movies that uh, you've mentioned, uh, Paula 13 and Schindler's List, also were my 17 and 18 on my list, too, back to back. And uh, both great filmmaking, uh, film watching experiences. Apollo 13, I do attribute it as one of my movies that gets me. In t- becoming such a big movie fan because of being sick and watching the special features. It's just, it's a great feat. And Tom Hanks being one of my favorite actors because of Apollo 13, how many times I've watched it too. So it's just a great film. And uh, I love that it's in two of the people's top tens. Maybe. Yeah. Two in case listeners tens. can't tell, we, we all grew up in the nineties. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, that influences a lot of our lists. Nineties and 2000s. just a little bit. Yeah. Just a little bit. All right. Adam, number six. All right, number six on my list, the one of the most overrated movies of all time, possibly to Todd, but I don't care. 1980s, we have The Shining. 1980s, The Shining, okay? 
Uh, this is the movie that I own the most copies of. So there's this, the DVD. That, that's just the 4K. I got the DVD, and I got a steel book of it, too. Plus, I have a box, a Kubrick box set, set too. Uh, the only thing I don't have, I need the VHS. But anyway, uh, for, I don't know why I love The Shining so much. I think it's because it's just one of those movies that I could pick new things out of it, and it's just an experience watching. It's, it's an atmospheric film for me. I, I mentioned earlier when I mentioned, I believe Clockwork Orange was a movie I didn't really like that I eventually over time appreciated more and more, and The Shining is that film. Uh, I did not really care for it too much. I thought it was just Shelley Duvall is really what really hampered me a lot from not liking it and maybe a, uh, other little some other things I can't recall at the moment. But rewatching it, I appreciate that performance, even though I, you know, I'm not blind to it. Maybe it's not as good as Jack Nicholson because he's a electric and he's one of those big oversights that we should have had on our list for how many movies he was going to be in on our top 100. Uh, but yeah, Jack Nicholson's electric and he's one of my favorite uh, actors of all time. And you can see that on my list. There's a lot of Jack Nicholson representation here. Uh, for The Shining is one of my favorite horror films that I, hasn't been mentioned yet. And I, I enjoy Dr. Sleep. It's a, definitely a different take, but definitely plays homage to it. Even the sequence in Ready Player One always gets me excited too. Something about the the Shining and the Overlook Hotel that just makes me feel kind of cold and unnerved uh, in, in it as well. So agree or disagree, I don't care. The Shining is my number six film of all time. And my wife has told me, stop buying the dang movie. So that, That's fair. That's fair. You've, you've got some... Yeah. Yeah. It it's a it's a good movie. It's one of those that you got to appreciate if nothing else, for sure. Um, yeah, no, no one agrees with that. <laughs> that but, should but, be you you definitely love it a lot more a lot more than I do. No, no. Yeah, I don't really like it. I think it's like Kubrick's worst movie, but I don't know. <laughs> I've seen it a few times and I, I got I've never been able to see what everyone else sees in it. I like it a lot. I give it 4 stars too except I I like it for the buildup. I don't necessarily love the final 30 minutes. I think it's more fascinating as a portrait of a family that is going through a lot of trauma with a recovering alcoholic and abuse yep. and childhood trauma. Too. Like that to me is more interesting as the undercurrent of horror than the actual like, you know, gruesome stuff in the last 30 yeah, minutes of the movie. Going to the insanity of all things and hunting them down through the maze. I, I get that. It, it ends very abruptly too. And I get this. Uh, uh, what's who wrote the book? Uh, oh my Stephen goodness. King. Stephen King. Jesus, uh, he did not like this, and I and I get I I get I understand why. But the whole buildup, like you were saying, that's what really is the, the what the movie is great for is that buildup. Now, now, do you do you keep your DVDs and Blu-rays in the freezer like Joey does the book? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, all right, all right. Moving on. Rad Ram, Number... Rad Ram. Yeah, Rad Ram. Number six on my list is another Best Picture winner from the 90s. Uh, it It is from 1994. But it's Um. Now, I... I realize that, that I, I love this movie more than anybody else, and I am a sucker for sentimentality and and if yes, there's something are. that is a theme on my list, it's it's sentimentality and and pure. I, I I feel like like Forrest Gump is such a pure character in this movie. In in how he's how he's portrayed, 
um, and and just in in his in in just everything about him, uh, the journey that he goes on. I love how it it has all these uh, callbacks to moments in history. Uh, the the just it, it it's it's such a great movie, and I think that. Tom Hanks gives one of the greatest performances like of all time in this movie and how he's able to, to portray this in, in this simplified or just a simple man that, uh, that just knows very few things, but what he knows, he knows for sure. And, uh, and it's brilliant. And then you add in Gary Sinise, you add in, uh, you add in Robin Wright, you, and you add in, uh, Michael T. Williams and on, on all these, all these great characters that kind of come up around him. It is, uh, it is so good. It's Michael T. Williamson. I got that wrong. Michael T. Williamson. Um, but, um, Forrest Gump is, it's just, it's just brilliant. It, it's a brilliant film. And, uh, I, I love, I love everything about this movie and, uh, and it had to be, it had to be up here high on my list. Um, Tom Hanks in the nineties, man, he, 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 he had it all. So, all right, oh, that's it. So I'm going to pose the same question that I, I did about once, which is what, what's the best use of music in Forrest Gump? Because Forrest Gump to me is one of the great music movies of all time. Killer soundtrack. Also great score by Alan Silvestri. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. The, I mean, the theme to the score is, is brilliant as well. Um, I'll give you mine while okay. you think. My favorite song in, in it is uh, Freebird by Leonard Skinner, which is the sequence when Jen A almost commits suicide. And I cannot listen to that song without thinking about that sequence. That's a that's a good call. I'm, I I love the. Um, now, which song is it when he's running uh, the montage of him running? Um, I'm trying to think of what the song is. I spray was running. What did you say, Todd? Oh, spray and wash. That's not. That's wrong. <laughs> that, no, <laughs> wrong no, movie. No. But no. Uh, the girl in it was something else, though. I I can't think of it. But yeah, no. That that's a. All right. Well, we we'll cut this part out. But like, uh, you know, Forrest Gump and Goodfellas are like the soundtracks to the 20th century. Pretty much. Pretty much. Because of the soundtrack to the 70s, I guess. Yes. Soundtrack to the 70s is the soundtrack of the, of the 90s. <laughs> uh, all right. With that, we move on to Todd, number six. My number six comes from 1992. I even think I'm a little crazy for having it this high, but I love it so much. It is Glen Gary, Glen Ross. There you go. By James Foley, which it's a movie about real estate brokers on constant pressure from their bosses the shitty leads are given and the annoying snake of uh williamson uh kevin spacey in the movie it's based on a play and it's the best adapted screenplay that's ever been written it's also the best ensemble cast that's ever been assembled al, al pacino was nominated for this and now the entire cast is oscar nominated because jonathan price has a nomination now ellen arkin ed harris kevin spacey jack lemon and alec baldwin in the best one scene performance of all time I just watched this again last week, actually, and I know it by heart, basically. Terry and I used to put this on as background noise because the dialogue is so intoxicating to listen to, and the, the score is really good as well. And I love every part of this movie. I wish I had come up with the idea to be on Inside the Actor Studio and ask Kevin Spacey to ask me to go to lunch three times, because I totally would have done it. 
I don't think there's anybody that's going to have this movie number six on their top 100, but going like, Glenn Ross, I could, I mean, I, I've watched it a lot and I, I love it. I love every part of it. And you got brass balls, put it that high. No, good, great pick. That's, that's a great movie. So, so this was the first week of school. And as I was telling my kids about myself, one of the things I said is, um, uh, I love to uh, to quote movies in the middle of class that so you'll have no idea what that it is actually a movie quote. And and one of my favorites to do is go to lunch, go to lunch. Will you go to lunch? Nice. Yeah. I'm glad you're not saying any of Ed Harris's lines because then you might get fired. <laughs> well, well, yeah. I'm going to Wisconsin. I'm going to Wisconsin. <laughs> they ought to say that. Uh, by the way, Zach, I looked it up. Running on empty. That's the song that's oh, okay. playing while you, during the running montage. I don't really running remember. On empty. I don't really remember a lot of music or women in Glengarry Glen Ross, but I'm sure they're good too. They're, the music is really good, but yeah, there's no women in the movie. Yeah. All right, it's a it's a classic Todd pick. I mean, I, I respect I respect the big giant brass balls to put it number six <laughs> because that's that's insanely high for that movie. Which well, the only people that like it more are probably movie, the but... characters in Boiler Room. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm done. <laughs> okay, top five now, Zach. Yeah, I'm looking at Todd's list. Todd's Todd's movies are all about douchebags. Like, <laughs> are there any likable characters in any of your top movies so far? I mean, except Beatrix for the bride. Kiddo. Yeah, the, the bride, and that's about it. I, I mean, I'm not complaining. But I mean, escape it. I mean, I don't think you could say that guy's unlikable. True. The Nazis are pretty unlikable. Speaking that's of Nazis, um, oh, Nazism a big theme in our top ten. Who would have thought? Uh, I'm going to Merlot Terry and go with my number five, uh, Schindler's List from 1993. Um, I, I echo a lot of what Terry said. Uh, yeah, there's a really great clip of Spielberg talking about Schindler's List on YouTube. Yeah, actually, there's several, but one of them he's talking about how uh, he wanted to make Schindler a very complicated, uh, uncompromising character. And so he had the sequence with the girl in the red coat and Schindler is watching it from horseback above the city and so we think oh you know Schindler is now emotionally moved and he's going to go out to start rescuing these Jews because he's seen the slaughter but then the next scene actually um, has him uh, basically uh, getting rid of his labor force and it like it, it go it shows you just how complicated the, the, the character was because he was someone who wasn't, he never set out to save uh, the Jews. He never set out to be a humanitarian. Um, he set out to make money. And the movie is uncompromising about that. I think it absolutely shows that the opening sequence, well, you know, everybody talks about the end sequence uh, and the sequence where he says, I could have done more. And obviously those are great sequences and, and the girl in the, in the coat. But no one talks about how great that opening sequence is when, we're, when we first see Schindler and he puts on the little Nazi lapel because he's really only a Nazi by, by name only. He doesn't really, he's not an ideologue. And then he schmoozes. He goes into that club where they're doing the tango and he's, he smoozes everybody in the room. He's taking pictures with the, uh, the, the Weimar dancer group and all the, bureau, the Nazi bureaucrats. And by the end of it, he has won over all the Nazi establishment and they love him. And it's a great kind of introduction to, to who that character is and how slimy he is. Um, and then as you go th forth in the movie, one, one of my favorite scenes in the movie 
is when he's talking to Itzhak Stern, played by Ben Kingsley, not the Mandarin. This is a much better performance. And uh, Ben Kingsley's like, so let me, you know, you, uh, we, we do all the work. We have to go through and put all these shells together and, and you're the one making all the money. So what, what, what are you doing? And Schindler says, I don't do the work. It's not the work. It's not the work. It's the presentation. And so this guy is all about presentation. I love that. The Liam Neeson performance is, is, is so amazing in that movie. It's iconic. Uh, it's definitely not a movie you can turn on midway through. You really have to start it at the beginning. Uh, it's almost, I think, obscene to watch it midway through because the final five minutes of, this, of the movie are probably the most emo emotionally moving and draining uh, finale of any movie ever made. So you, you can't go in midway through. Um, it's, it's just a remarkable testament to, to survival and perseverance and, and compassion and, and, and peace, um, nonviolence. There's a great line about how the ultimate act of power is to spare someone's life. To, if you, you have the ability to kill them and you choose not to, uh, which Schindler says in the movie, it, it's an amazing, amazing movie. Agreed. And the best, maybe it's probably also the best soundtrack ever written in any movie, too. John Williams. That's true, too. That's true, too. You didn't mention John Williams. I did not. <laughs> I forgot to mention him. All right, we are. We already talked about it, so I think I think everyone was that uh, was that on either of Adam's or Todd's list. It's on Adam's yeah. list, I believe. Okay. It's not on Todd's. Yeah, because Todd is a different number one of ninety three. Yeah, and, and and he's got well, he had a I had two I had two ninety three movies on the list, but I know I've seen Schindler's List one time, and I mean I I don't know I don't know if I'll ever watch it again, but I mean it is it I mean it is great, but I I don't know if I would ever put it on my top one hundred. It, it just seems weird. It's like show you only up. had one Spielberg movie on your top 100, right? Correct. Yeah. All right. All right. Don't let Adam, us down, Adam. Give us another Nazi movie. Number Maybe five. That, that Nazi zombie movie. Okay. Number five is Red Snow, the Nazi zombie movie. No. Yes. Or no, Dead, Dead Snow. Dead Sorry. Snow. There we go. Red no, it's dead. just Red versus Dead. Yeah, there we go. That's Dead Snow, too. Um, <laughs> 2008's film, Darren Aronofsky. But we got The Wrestler, Mickey Rourke. Uh, this one, okay. The the Wrestler, coming from a uh, appreciation of loving those 90 wrestling programs, the WWE uh, and WCW back then, and seeing uh, the evolution of wrestling um, as throughout the years, the wrestling, the wrestler itself is the perfect depiction of that kind of sports or inter slash entertainment. Mickey Rourke is one of my favorite performances of all time. And it is after doing that deep dive we did with Todd, it just made me appreciate the movie so much more. And it is one of those ones that I, I, I can get something a little different every single time. And the, uh, the interactions that he, uh, Mickey Rourke has with his daughter and Marissa Tomei's character. And uh, the music also is really good too. And just, uh, his character throughout the, the Randy the Ram Robinson is uh, amazing, and I just appreciate this movie so much. It's not a, it's a kind of a more, kind of a depressing movie, and it it's open ended how you open to your interpretation at the ending of it. But it's one of my favorite films about uh, you know one of my favorite sports movies of all time, and just great performance that sure should have won Best Actor at the Oscars, but maybe a WrestleMania match messed that up for Mickey Rourke. So there we go. Independent Spirit Awards speech and oh yeah great speech there for well, that sure. was the day before it was more the golden globes that messed it up <laughs> True. 
But yeah, he's yeah. a WrestleMania match. Uh, we talked about that in the, the podcast. A little conspiracy theory there. Yeah, he uh, he wasn't supposed to step foot in the ring. His agent said no, and he did, and he punt made through a punch at, uh, in WWE, and that probably cut cost him the Oscar. Who knows? My favorite part of that podcast was you talking about the parking meters in New Jersey. That was <laughs> yeah, that was great. <laughs> that was great. <laughs> I mean, I had to look it up. I, if I was going to say a flaw in a flawless movie, I was going to have to <laughs> verify. Yeah. <laughs> I appreciate the effort. That's what I like. MVP of the episode was Todd for that that the factoid. Yeah. Well, there was a 50-50 shot yeah. for MVP <laughs> that episode. I think yeah, I've only seen true. it once, and so I probably need to see it again to really give a judgment on it. Yeah. It's good. Isn't yeah, it's, it a little... it's amazing. It was in my, it was in what, 11 through 20 online, I'm pretty sure. And yeah. Isn't it, okay, so, you know, going back to the wrestler, maybe you could say the same thing on Goodwill Hunting. Isn't it a little better that it didn't win Best Actor? Like now, now, you know, we can be angry about it and like, you know, sound cool. Like we know more, more than the Oscars do. Like, I don't know. I think, I think if Mickey had won for that movie, it would have taken some of the charm away from it. Maybe made it forgettable, maybe. That's, that's, a, that's a good, that's an interesting thought to think about. That could, That's that my could... conspiracy theory for the that episode that I was not invited on toward on to for some reason. <laughs> even though I love the movie too, just you know, not number five of all time, but maybe number five that year. Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, it's in that in the bedroom type zone with that. I mean, I feel like we we love that the way that you lived in the bedroom and like it's a similar kind of tone. And yeah, I mean, it didn't win anything, so probably makes it even better. And Bruce Springsteen getting snubbed? Really? Come on, it's a great song. Yes. All right, number five on my list. It's already been mentioned on someone else's list this episode. It is the, the poster that is actually right there above above my uh, my computer here. It is once. Um, that's why I didn't talk too much when Zach was talking about it. Um, this movie uh, again is so just pure. It's it's just an amazingly pure movie about a pure relationship. And it's always great when you can have these great profound movies where when you tell, like if someone asks you what's once about, it sounds horrible. It's about a guy and a girl making music. And they <laughs> don't horrible. really fall in love. It's just, they just make music. That that's, that's the whole movie right there. And it, it's it's beautiful it's brilliant um i i have loved this movie since the first time i saw it i think this is the only movie i've ever seen three times in theaters and i think one of those times zach you were with me and the other two you weren't but this is just it's a brilliant movie uh my wife walked down the aisle to falling slowly zach sang huh. falling slowly at a different point in our wedding um i did you did Oh, yeah. wow. Is that on tape somewhere? I hope not. Probably it, it, is. My, it, it probably is somewhere. But um, Enter snippet to the podcast. But, <laughs> I mean, it, it's, it, it, I love all the music from it. I love the movie. I love just, like I said, just the purity of the, of the story and the, the characters and the music. It's just so good. It's been too long since I've seen the movie, but I listen to the music all the time. So, number five. Yeah. Great. Great. Good pick. Got to rewatch that one, too. Yeah, you know, another good scene rewatching it this week was the scene when uh, Guy talks to his dad 
and his dad's after the, his dad has listened to because his dad's not all there. I mean, he still runs the vacuum shop, but he's he's not too far away from Anthony Hopkins and the father in like ten years. When and so, will you learn? And he says, you know, it's 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 just great. It's, it's really good. good. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> oh, I did it. He says it's great. It's amazing. Do your ma proud, which any other movie, that line would be so corny, but actually it's pretty good in that moment. And well, and that's one thing about this movie too, is, is the language in it just kind of ruins it because it's in Dublin, because it's Irish. It throws around some of those profanities. I mean, if it was an, if it was in Ireland, it would be a PG movie at worst, but because it's Irish, because they, they throw that word around a little more than, than we do here. It's an R-rated movie, but it's a movie anyone should see. Yeah. And and anyone should be allowed to see because it's just brilliant. Now, since you brought up this character in one of our power rankings a while ago, I want to know more about the drug addict who yes. steals money. I think we need a sequel. That if in our we could never really do a deep dive of once because there's not enough characters, but if we ever were to, that's the sequel. Once to twice, twice. about <laughs> about the drug once two colon twice yes <laughs> a, New Orleans twice. a second time <laughs> all about the drug dealer or the the, the drug addict as he goes around to vacuum shops the, exactly street. the drug the drug it, dealer who gets hired by the dad to fix hoovers because he's definitely not a drug dealer he's just a big, is a big guy now uh there it is it's our movie there it is uh, i i like it i like it we should pitch it to john kearney New Orleans Saints. Former New Orleans kicker. Saints kicker. Yeah. yeah. All right, Todd, number five. My number five comes from 1995. We did a deep dive of it. It is Mike Figgis' Leaving Las Vegas, which is, of course, the story of Ben Sanderson. He's a Hollywood screenwriter. He's in a rut, so he like burns everything he owns and heads to Vegas to drink himself to death, where he meets Sarah, who is the perfect like hooker with the heart of gold. And their companionship is just a beautiful thing, and it so it shows the really quick decline of Ben over the course of, I don't know, days. Uh, Nicolas Cage, as I said in our deep dive, gives the fifth best performance by a leading actor of all time. He will never have a role that is more suited for his unique Cageisms and also dramatic talent. I love how specific you are on these all times. The fifth oh. best performance of all time. Well, yeah, I mean, the I have them all best adapted screenplay of well, all I'm gonna, time. I got to have something unique to bring too? to this. It was not on my sound list. No, oh, okay. this this one is not. I want to know uh, more about your sound list. I think uh, Elizabeth Shue is amazing. I think that, I mean, I think she should win Best Actress that year. And it's a beautiful movie. It has a somewhat playful tone, but it's got these wrenching ideas and a score that plays with the audience like a fiddle. And I just, I mean, the book is like pure poetry, and the movie is the visual manifestation of the book. And Leaving Las Vegas is a masterpiece. I will say one of the things I've noticed about leaving Las Vegas, though, is um, I don't think a good movie poster exists of leaving Las Vegas. Like even that, like that DVD cover I just said, I'm like, nah. Yeah, no, that's that's, not not very good. Yeah, it's not great. It looks like a directed DVD movie from like 2015 or something. That might be the best one I've seen. Like there's not a good, like the one we have on the website is is like. one where he's underwater underwater drinking. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good poster. I don't know if there's a DVD of that though. It's pretty like low, low def though. I don't know. It, 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 that's a pretty low budget movie. (laughs) That's true. That's true. (laughs) 
I just love I love the idea of Mike Figgis and Nicolas Cage, somebody actually greenlighting a movie with those two. Someone giving them, you know, a couple million dollars and saying, go ahead and make something. That's terrifying. Well, it's like right now, if they did that, yeah. That would, that would be pretty <laughs> terrifying. <laughs> I'm glad that I knew that this was gonna be pretty high on your list, so it's awesome. I also mentioned this one. It's a great, great movie. Yeah, when I first met you, Todd, this was your number one movie. I, I always dug that. I thought that was a cool choice. I don't know if I ever said that it was my number one, but I, w I wouldn't be surprised if I did say that. <laughs> but I don't think I did. I didn't, but I did. <laughs> All right, Zach, number four. Okay, number four, sticking with our themes of really only talking about movies during the 90s and 2000s. I'll continue that theme. <laughs> Um, this is a movie that, uh, when it was nominated for an Oscar, I think nobody had heard of it. When it won the Oscar, people were like, hmm, that was kind of an upset. I think everybody was picking Pan's Labyrinth Shocked. in that category. Shocked. And uh, when it actually came out, um, I saw it on my birthday, on my 20th birthday, with my uh, German history class with Professor J.D. Winnikin. Shout out to uh, J.D.K. out there. I'm sure he's listening. And uh, that movie is The Lives of Others. When, when we watched it at the Fox Tower, uh, we, uh, first of all, I remember, I, I'm pretty sure I thought the movie was about uh, the Holocaust. Didn't think <laughs> that it was about the Stasi. Uh, totally got the era wrong. Uh, we went to uh, Starbucks afterwards and talked about it. And I remember, uh, you know, I was pretty vocal in that class, talk, especially talking about my favorite German movies. And I didn't have anything to say about this movie. I... It, it, it was so impactful and just so great that I really needed to like ruminate on it for, for a time. It's also kind of a complicated movie at first. It probably takes a few times to, to really get it um, because there's a lot of characters and you have to have some knowledge a bit about the East German police state in the 1980s. Uh, but the truth is, you know, watching as many times as I have, it really is it's about the Stasi, yes, but it's really more about this character, uh, Weisler, who is the agent for the Stasi and his gradual transformation over the course of the movie. Obviously, Todd and Adam have serial killers as a theme on their list. One theme on my list is characters who go through major moral and ethical transformations over time, like Oscar Schindler and like Weisler, who is this stalwart, you know, good German uh, Stasi officer at the beginning of the movie, but then who begins, he begins to start questioning um, why he is supporting this regime that portends to be something uh, that promotes humanity, humanity and camaraderie and ideas, uh, but really is just uh, serving the interests of a few corrupt bureaucrats at the very top. And so he has this uh, friendship with this uh, playwright named Georg Dreimann. It's a friendship that is totally one-sided because they never see each other. He is uh, basically surveying him from the attic of his apartment it's a beautiful movie about friendship between two characters who never meet. I, I love that idea. I can't think of another movie quite like that. And the end of the movie, which moves forward in time pretty quickly, shows uh, the significance of that friendship. And even if you think that, uh, you know, you may have gotten the sleight of hand of something in your life, uh, maybe people people will watch and acknowledge it. And uh, Weasler gets his ultimate comeuppance at the end of the movie it's just an amazing amazing movie that you don't really have to know that much about german history or be a fan of germany to, to watch uh it's a beautiful and moving story a love story between between two people who never get the opportunity to meet but still have mutual respect uh for each other so uh, my yes uh, i'm glad it beat pan's labyrinth and i wish florian Winkel don't 
Von Donner's mark would make more movies. I liked his movie a couple years ago that was uh, about the artist guy, and it was also three hours long. Um, I did not like the one he did with Johnny Depp and Angelina Jolie. That was trash. That's what I was going to mention. Yeah, Yeah, he's only made three movies, and it's Lives of Others, A Tourist, and Never Look Away. And I haven't seen Never Look Away, but it's just funny how much that how much the tourist just ruined his career yeah it, i and, i want to uh, know more about it he, he listened to the, the commentary track on this movie is amazing too it, it, it's also one of the best screenplays ever written to it, it it's based on some true events but the characters are fictionalized and it's just a remarkable remarkable lucid script yeah yeah i i had this number 46 on my list and if i had seen it uh again in the last like 10 years it probably would have been higher but i hadn't so it wasn't yeah i've only seen it once and i i mean it, i guess it could if i saw it again move up pretty far but i i don't know i would need to yeah i would need to watch it again all right adam number four yes the mariners just took the lead okay anyway <clears throat> adam you haven't seen the lives of others right I have not seen the lives of others. Oh, no, dude, dude, you got to yeah, watch it. Out. You have to watch it. Yeah, so I was, I was like, I can't really say nothing about it because I had, don't know anything. So I was kind of just like listening. So it's, it's on my list. And that's like, like I love having the homework to do because it gets me more of those films that I are complete blind spots. So it's nice. Gotta do that. All right, go for it. All right, number six or number four is 1960s Psycho. It I just wow. oh, I give it mention. Yeah, so there we go. Uh, another uh, serial killer film here. Uh, I have to pretty much echo everything about that Todd has already said about the movie. Um, well, I kind of really like the sequels. I think like the fourth one is probably the second best film in the thing. It's I believe that's a new beginning and the one that um, I think Perkins did. Perkins direct that one. I can't remember, but no, he directed Psycho Three. That's the weakest. Yeah, three. One. Yeah, that's the weakest one. Yeah, uh, but anyway, it's that the straight to v- uh, TV movie that. Uh, Cycle Four is actually pretty dang good. The whole franchise is actually really cool, interesting kills. But the first one is the more uh, the iconic one, the Hitchcock uh, threaded one, and it, it is uh, great. The killing off of Janet Lee right at the shower sequence is one of the most iconic. One of those movie scenes that would be totally different if the score wasn't as good as it was. It's just a fantastic film, and I absolutely love the Norman Bates character, the twists and turns that this takes. Uh, so yeah, Psycho number four, favorite horror film of all time, and it's also my fourth favorite film. Of all time perfect wow. there we go thank <laughs> you double mention for psycho did not see that one coming not not in the top 10 i think yeah, I, I think it's on my list somewhere but two top 10s that's listen, that's impressive what do you guys think of the last 10 minutes of psycho i think it's kind of terrible it sort of ruins the movie that's where the twist comes in and the, the whole the whole no, ending of him I don't like being, you know, mansplained by why this was uh, Freudian psychology. Like, we don't, we don't need it. That's also an iconic shot of him just kind of sitting there in his thing, just that little that that smile up too. I think no, that no, no, that shot great. is fantastic. I love, I love it. I just don't like the whole explanation. Oh, Norman Bates was suffering from this and this and this. Like, okay, we get it. We don't need it. Maybe that was required for Hitchcock to put in. <laughs> yeah, after he like, broke all the rules making that, the movie. That's not a very good part of the movie. I don't know. I mean, I guess, but I mean, you say that about like half the movies on your list. Like, I hate the last thirty minutes, but the first, you know, hour is really good. <laughs> so, yeah, that's true. It's a good. It's it's just a it's just a cool movie. And Hitchcock and the landing. Yeah. But I agree. I, I I agree. It's iconic and classic. And I don't know how we haven't done a deep dive on it sixty years later. 
Yeah, we should do that. We should. All right. Of course, I took a snack, and now it's my turn to talk. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Number four on my list. I am shocked has not appeared on anybody else's list. And I think it's the only, I'm the only one that have it on my list. From 1976, Network. Ah, have not seen this one. Oh, okay. Well, that explains you. It doesn't explain the other two. Uh, this is like the most forward-thinking movie of all time. As you have um, a, um, a network of... Uh, um, network news reporter who kind of starts to lose it and his um, his film company is, or his, his uh, news network decides to exploit that and use it to for ratings. Brilliant performance by Peter Finch and Faye Dunaway I think is just outstanding in this movie as well. Um, but it, it, this movie is all about the, the screenplay. And what Patty Chayefsky is able to do with uh, with this movie and and really predict what's going to happen, not just a few years later, but the, I mean, this is it took like 30 years for the payoff to actually happen. And you look back on this, it's one of the most rewatchable movies from the 70s because you watch it. And you see what's happening in news now and news now is not about the truth. It's about ratings. It's not about. It's not about reporting what's happening in the world. It's about finding ways to to uh, to exploit uh, things so that you can so that you can make more money. It's it's brilliant what he was able to do with this, and it's just a it's just a brilliant movie and how it's able to put this all together. Um, uh, William Holden got a, got an Oscar nomination from this true to um, uh, Beatrice Strait. I think right isn't that who, who got yep. the nomination as well i mean it, or one didn't she win yeah i think she won for a one scene performance um just just a brilliant movie and it's been a long time since i've seen this but all i remember i i just remember just being awestruck by this movie and and what it was able to do and how it was able to put this all together and again 1976 just a an insane year for movies when you consider this taxi driver rocky all the president's men all came out that year it's just insane so so network is my number four film of all time sounds like a really solid movie that i need to watch yeah i mean i like it it's jim carrey's favorite movie and there's a great youtube clip all about (laughs) how jim carrey loves it um but uh, I don't know. I rewatched most of it not, not too long ago. I think it, it has not aged great. I mean, television was sort of an easy target in the 1970s, and I think it kind of morphed into something, I don't know, in like late 90s, early 2000s with the growth of you know, serialized television, complex TV, into something greater. So I think it takes some context to understand where Chayefsky was coming from with that screenplay, but it does have some great iconic performances. And... I like the the subtler moments in the movie, you know. Like I like the Beatrice Strait scene a lot, and I like the William Holden character. I think the the over the topness is what gets remembered, but there's there's some good smaller moments in it as well. All right, Todd, number four. Yeah, that's a great movie. It also sounds like somebody like just walked into a like a warehouse or something. There's like some really loud noise. Okay, I'll turn it up. <laughs> And a dog Wait, somewhere. 
Yeah, that's my neighbor's dog and my AC because it's burning up in this room. Oh, okay. Turn, anyway, is that better? Yeah, yeah a, a little, little bit, a little bit. I'll turn it off. It, it, it's fine. It's fine. It, it's kind of been there the whole time, so we're all good. Okay. My number four is from 1984, Quentin Tarantino's Pulp Fiction. There we go. Which I have never had ranked this high before, but if you're talking about rewatchability and you're talking about how many times I mentioned on power rankings, how many, how I love all the characters, how like every scene is the good scene, this is one of the great movies of all time. And it changed the way like stories are told in movies, really. It introduced the mainstream to Uma Thurman. I, I mean, I wish I could have been old enough to see this for the first time in 1994 because I can't imagine what that would have done to me because I see, probably had seen movies like it when I watched it for the first time when I was like in high school or whatever. But everyone knows the movie. Everyone loves the movie. It's it, it's not the most original thing calling it a favorite, but I mean, I'd be lying if I didn't put it this high because I, I I could watch any any moment, any, any scene in the movie and I would be completely taken with it. It's uh, the best original screenplay of all time and the best editing of all time. Pulp Fiction is my number four. I mean, yeah, it, it, out of respect. Way to go. Good job. Good job. Yeah, good call. Good call yeah. on that one. I like how Tarantino based the dance sequence off the Aristocats. And uh, if you ever watch like the making of that scene, he like actually does all the dance moves and shows Uma and John Travolta like exactly what he wants with their dance moves. That's and like, you know, he, he totally loves dance sequences from like, you know, the Godard movies. So. I, I yeah, greatest dance sequence of all time too, right? Yeah, everybody wants to be Probably. a cat. Yeah. <laughs> all right, all right, Zach, number three. Okay, number three is a movie I rewatched last night. Uh, it's a movie that uh, yeah, go, kind of goes back to the uh, the fruition of our of our friendship here on the Almost Sideways podcast because I think I told Todd to watch it and he was he watched it and, and I, I think he gained a newfound respect for me which that's the ultimate a sign of, a, of of appreciation when you're when you're a film goer when you can recommend something and someone watches it and they think hey this person must be pretty cool um, <laughs> the movie is uh, you know 2001 was a great year it had, it's you know Beautiful Mind won Best Picture deservedly but I have always thought In the Bedroom was a slightly better movie that should have won Best Picture. Um, based on the short story Killings by Andre Dubois, or Dubois, although that short story only covers the last like 30 minutes of the movie. Um, but it stars Tom Wilkinson, Sissy Spacek, Marissa Tomei, second Marissa Tomei movie we've mentioned here today. And uh, yeah, watching it last night, I mean, it's, it's just, it's, uh, it's so unpredictable. You know, you, you, you think the movie's going in one direction, then it kind of goes somewhere completely different. It starts out being about a summer romance between an 18-year-old kid and this much older woman. And then it turns into something about his parents. And then it turns into a movie about grief and anger and aggression. And then finally becomes this sort of treatise on violence and whether violence is something that's just sort of innate or is it inborn in people or is it kind of drawn out by external events that are placed on you. It captures, I think, the culture of New England really well. There's uh, stuff in this movie about class. Um, there's stuff in this movie about uh, anger, about long marriage that may not have been totally happy or fulfilling. Um, and uh, most of all, grief. Um, and it's about how that grief kind of creates uh, a monster that really can't totally be controlled. Um, Tom Wilkinson's amazing. I, you know, the the sequence at the end of the movie where he's driving in the car with William Mapother in the middle of the night. If I'm driving, I don't often drive in the middle of the night in a car at 1 a.m., but when I do, I think about that sequence and I 
wish I could listen to the Red Sox game. Um, it's, uh, you know, a, a perfect movie that <clears throat> hasn't always been in my top 10. Um, it's kind of moved in and out. Uh, but uh, when I saw it uh, around the same time I saw A Beautiful Mind, it pretty much changed my life and made me want to watch movies all day, all the time. So uh, Todd Field, wherever you're living now on an island, <laughs> maybe with Daniel Day-Lewis, you know, away from existence, please come back yeah. to us. We need you. Well, when I yeah, met this... you, this was your number one of all time. Well, you were debating between this and the best of youth. I have a picture somewhere of you in your A's hat that you gave me holding your best of youth DVD and your in the bedroom DVD. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, I hadn't seen it. Uh, I saw it in 2001 and then I didn't watch it again for five years because I thought if I was going to watch it again, I would, I would notice flaws in it. So I'd rather, you know, um, have it, uh, have, have put the pussy on the pedestal. Right. I mean, that's exactly <laughs> what I did with this movie. So <laughs> I'm, I'm glad I can now rewatch it I and not be hearing that. too intimidated <laughs> by it. But uh, yeah, I as children just walk by in the hallway. No one's been here the whole time. Now I just saw like little kids walking by as I screamed "pussy" oh, on the pedestal. That's fun. <laughs> <laughs> I have to do some explaining about that. Why Mr. Salt is there on a Sunday night talking about pussy? Uh, that's awesome. That's awesome. Zach uh, Lewin on the podcast. All right, Adam, number three. All right, number three, uh, movie has been mentioned, I believe, uh, but I definitely have the highest one. Uh, we're talking about movies that are kind of embody our childhood, and this one is definitely the one that has done it the most, and that's going to be Star Wars, The Empire Strikes Back, Episode Five, whatever the case may be. Uh, uh, the Empire Strikes Back was a movie growing up that, again, I will say this once more, I didn't like. I was more of a Return of the Jedi fan growing up. I thought Empire Strikes Back was not that good to be honest however re-watching it when i was sick along with Apollo 13 i deep dove all the uh when in this i locked myself in my room and i watched all the special features and re-watched it back to back times was one of the first times i've ever done that and i, I think i watched like three or four times that week and i just got, gained this newfound appreciation for it that I realized it's not just like the, the dumb snow movie it's actually pretty uh, deep and dark and have good relations between the father and the son there. And I just, I thoroughly enjoyed this one. This became my most essential, like my favorite movie of all time when I was younger. Uh, and I has one of the most misquoted lines of all time. It's not uh, Luke, I'm your father. No, it's like, no, I am your father. And uh, it's just a great little twist there that no one saw really coming. And I, I can only imagine what it was like sitting in the theater, watching that, uh, getting that real uh, revelation there and for me again i'm not going to hide the fact that you know star wars was a big part of my life you know it, it was and that's why like you'll see movies like star wars raiders and back to the future on my top 100 because I, I would be doing myself a disservice if i do not include movies that just meant a lot to me that i watched hundreds of thousands of times growing up too so gotta put star wars empire strikes back at number three and for me that's where it belongs top five for me i can respect that yeah. So where is Star Wars on your top? Uh, it's top 50, I believe. That's the first Star Wars. That's the only other movie that makes my list. I think Return of the Jedi was on my original top 100 list. Uh, Return of the Jedi does, is not nearly as uh, near there now. I don't think it, it, it's still a good movie, but I can uh, I think other Star Wars movies are probably made better and are probably better movies. And there's some chances like The Last Jedi that it could probably 
surpassed that one too. So I still really like uh, Return of the Jedi, but I think Star Wars and Empire Strikes Back are two better ones that deserve to be on my top 100. Yeah, so Star Wars was number 33 on your list. It's interesting to see how many sequels we have ranked above originals. Like I'm thinking, you know, Todd had before uh, Sunrise. No, I'm sorry, before Sunset and Godfather 2, I think higher than the original. Terminator 2 as well. Yeah. Terminator 2. So, oh, interesting. Kill Bill Vine 2. Yep. Oh, yeah, yeah, of course, yeah. But not Home Alone 2. Not home Nobody home has home. that on their list. Or Space Jam <laughs> no. 2, although that bet is still open, technically. It's true. It's it true. could show up. All right, number three on my list. It is the second film in my top ten from the 30s. It is the second film on my top ten that I own, but I don't have here because it's in my classroom because I like to show it to my class. Uh, because it is a, a perfect movie to show in a U.S. history class, and that is from 1939, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, uh, I, I love this movie. And again, it's such a pure movie and, and Jefferson Smith is such a pure character who has all the ideals of what this country should be in his head. And he's able to go to Washington as this naive Senator and see, um, how our country actually works. And, and what I love about it is I love how he, he gets to learn about the system. He gets to learn about the machine that, that runs our country and yet is still able to overcome it. And uh, the, the ending of this movie is, is brilliant. It's uh, it's awesome to see how he, uh, Whoa, what was that? Anyways, it's able, how he's able to go through and, and, and persevere and able to conquer everything that's that's up against him. Jimmy Stewart gives like I mean I think it's one of his best performances of all time. Uh, Gene Arthur is amazing in this movie, and then you also have Claude Rains. It it's it's one of my favorite movies of all time. I could watch this movie any day of the week. Uh, so it, it's it's just great. So Mr. Smith goes to Washington. It's my number three. I had that at five to one that it was gonna be your number one. So yeah, yeah, we're in we're in that range though. A- Adam, you're muted. Yeah, Adam, we can't hear you anymore. That's right. I muted the mic. Sorry. There we go. Now we can hear yeah, you. Okay. I almost watched this today because it appeared on HBO Max. So, uh, good call. Have you seen it? No, I've not seen it. Then, then you, then as soon as we're done recording, you're going to go watch it because it's okay. on HBO Max and you can watch it. There we go. Perfect. <laughs> I mean, I, I, when I went to Washington, D.C. for the first time, I stood at the Lincoln Memorial. And what did I think of? I thought of Jefferson Smith sitting at the steps of, of the Lincoln Memorial. And, and like I had to get a picture of myself looking out over the mall like Jefferson Smith. Uh, yeah, it, it's it's great. It's it's a great movie. It's nowhere close to It's a Wonderful Life. Oh, I, I love I love this one more than It's a Wonderful Life. So much more. Okay. Todd number two. Or no, Todd number three. Number three is higher than its sequels, The Godfather, nineteen seventy two. So Zach jumped the gun oh, okay. a little bit on that Sorry one. That. This is the the quintessential American movie. It's a completely perfect movie. There's not one wasted second in the movie. And it, the tone is so well established. I can't imagine the movie being told any other way. 
And I rewatch the whole series once a year, and this will always be the best one. I mean, it's hard to imagine what this would have done to like audiences in 1972. I mean, it doesn't feel like any other movie from the 70s. It is, it, it's some, something complete. It's a monster all of its own. And I'll exactly love this. It's third on my best director all time list. Al Pacino is second on my best actor all time list. The screenplay is third best adapted screenplay, second best original score, second best ensemble cast. It is objectively the best movie ever made. But where is it on your sound list? That's the real question. I, don't, I only ranked to five. It, it didn't quite make that list. What What is your sound list? I'm just yeah, curious I think we now. just need to know. <laughs> okay. uh, my best sound mixing list is number one, A Man Escape. Number two, Blowout. Number three, There Will Be Blood. Four, Psycho. Five, The Right Stuff. Mm. Oh. Okay. okay. There you go. Now you know. Now we know. The more you know. Da, 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 da. Yeah, the, pro the problem is, Todd, you and I have had conversations about this. We both know that Godfather 3 is the best one. We just can't admit it. There, Yeah, I mean, there are times I rewatch it when the Godfather 3 just completely knocks me over. Yeah. But the Godfather is a perfect movie, though. And The Godfather Part 3 is not perfect. Neither is Part 2. No, no, no absolutely not. I, I completely agree. But if I'm going to watch a Godfather movie, I think I would choose 3 at this point. Well, it's a little bit with, shorter. With its flaws. And I, I kind of like it for its flaws, actually. Well, yeah, and it, it kind of ruined it when they re-cut re it. Like, the, yeah, I think I the re-edit re yeah. of Part 3 is not... It, it kind of makes me like it a little less. That's fair. I haven't seen it yet. I don't. I don't want to. I like. Sometimes a movie works with blemishes and all. And Godfather Three absolutely is one of those movies. All right, Zach, number two. Oh my gosh, I don't know. You know, uh, so earlier this week, or the last few weeks, I've been really upset because I put a stupid movie in my top fifty, and that was Castaway. What was I thinking? Castaway is <laughs> not that good of a movie. I had it above. The Godfather. You're busting our balls. I, I, you guys were totally right. You called me out on it. So, um, you know, I'm like Terry. Just put it in the 80s somewhere. I don't even care. You take it off my top 100. No, stupid. it's locked in. It's now locked it's in. locked in. So now I'm stuck, knowing that these two movies are going to be my number one and two. And whichever one I pick as number two, I'm going to think I should have picked that as my number one for the next eight years. For the next eight years. So, what, what would Moving Castaway do? No, he, he he's just mad that that this means it's locked in. It just it's locked in. I don't like it. Oh, so you haven't changed your list at all? I don't like it. My no, he changed two, his list. My number two 10. is a separation. Oh. It should be my number one. It's. <laughs> I think it's a better movie. The reason it's not my number one, I guess, is because it leaves it leaves you cold watching it because it's a movie. I mean, you watch that end sequence, for example, which is the great, you know. I mean, there's no resolution in that end sequence deliberately. But uh, I rewatched this earlier this week, and it just reaffirmed every every reason why I named it the best movie of this decade. Uh, it, it's flawless uh, storytelling. Uh, you know, Oscar Fahadi now, you know, he makes movies in sort of a similar style. So, like, all of his movies, you know, start out with introducing these characters, and something happens in the first 30 minutes that you don't think is significant, and really the rest of the movie is just this sort of procedural that where characters re-examine what happened to lead to these consequences, but, you know, they didn't know what happened. It's just, 
it's a brilliant look at um, Iranian society, although it's not really a movie um, that you have to be familiar with Iran to for it to work. It's a movie about families and conflicts, class conflict, religious, uh, gender conflicts. Uh, it's a movie about people who uh, would rather complain and have vendettas than try to actually solve problems. People who throw problems on other people to solve because they don't have the courage to stand up for, for their beliefs and to do the right thing. Um, it's a movie about a marriage that is on the verge of, of dissolving because one character wants to move away and the other one wants to stay closer to their elderly parent. It's, uh, it's a movie about, I think, every single issue that we as a, as a world experience, um, you know, issues about discrimination and poverty and resolution, lack of resolution about our court systems. I, I, I don't know what else to say about it, except it should be my number one. I, the reason it's not is that I think after watching it, I don't know if I feel hope for humanity. And so I want to have a movie that gives me hope for humanity. This is not it. But I think it's objectively, like what Todd was saying about The Godfather, the best movie ever made. That was what I predicted was going to be your number one. And yes, it should have been your number one because it's way better than your number one. <laughs> yeah, it, it probably is. Well, eight, eight years from now, I'll take notes. There you go. There you go. Castaway won't be on the list either. Eight years from now, your number one's going to be Uncut Gems. You know that. It's very possible. But so, will, so it will also be Todd's number one. That's sure. true. That's true. All right. Adam, number two. All right, number two. I don't think this movie's been mentioned in the top 100 yet. And uh, it's not like it's a, a bad movie. I think we all say it's a pretty good movie. It's from 1957, directed by Sidney Lamont. Lamont, and that is 12 Angry Men. Yes. Okay. Uh, so I've seen this a ton now, and every single time I appreciate it more and more. I love the all-in-one setting, a uh, bunch of guys talking about a case, and if, especially if you've ever been a part of a, the jury process, that is uh, nerve-wracking, and, uh, and being in that room talking and say, stating you, what your thoughts are on the case or whatever. Uh, it's a, it's, it's, it's tough being in that spot, uh, speaking from experience there. And, but watching this movie, every time I watch it, I always think like, Oh, they're going to, are they going to make the right decision? And hearing, uh, Henry Fonda come up and talk about his, his thoughts on it and changing everybody's opinion. That's, and I think they got, they got it right. And it just seeing this movie play out, it's just a great bit of like kind of storytelling from swinging the balances of one point, one views to the other two. So, I totally anger man. It's just a great experience. My wife actually, I made her watch this one time and she thought she was going to absolutely hate it because, you know, it's all oh, it's black and white movies. She, that's not her cup of tea, cup of tea type of thing. Not really a lot of action, but she actually thought this was a dang good movie too. So she's like, man, maybe your film taste doesn't suck all the time. So there we go. So 12 Angry Men uh, is a great film. It's my number two favorite film of all time. I mean, it's a great movie. It's hard to argue with that, but. Yeah, it's not my top 100. Yeah. It's a solid choice. I, I want to know more about all those characters, you know? Like, screw the case. I, I don't care about that. It's much more of a person of a, a personality study, you know? And mm -hmm. how these characters dress and the way they look. I mean, it's not the most diverse movie in the world, obviously. I You know? But, like, based on just kind of how, how what we assume their appearances to be, the, their, their demeanor, their mannerisms, the way they speak, what they say, it's just sort of a fascinating study about the way that different people can approach 
the same sort of evidence. And uh, I think the formula was used much better in uh, a movie I had in my top 20 list, Two Days, One Night, which I think has a lot of similarities to 12 Angry Men. But it's hard to argue with that pick, Adam. It's, it, it is a classic movie. Thank you. Is it bad that I saw the 90s made-for-TV remake first? Yeah. Oh, it's kind of like me and saying old boy, too. Yeah. Watching the yeah. old wrong old yeah. boy first. The, yeah. the, the made-for-TV made 90s remake with uh, Jack Lemmon and, uh, and George C. Scott and Tony Danza and I think James Gandolfini was in it. Sounds right. Anyways, I think there was another one too that they just did it a while ago too. It was another TV movie, I think. I'm not sure. I came across it. Yeah. Second time we have a top ten movie by Adam that was remade for TV in the '90s, because uh, <laughs> The Shining was also remade. Yep. Oh, and right. Psycho, Rear Window too. Is that your number Psycho, one? Psycho, I, I did. I had yeah, Psycho as well. Rear Rear Window. Yeah, I had that one. <laughs> All right, number two on my list is. From the same year as my number three, and that is The Wizard of Oz. So, this is a movie that, if you were to say, "What's what are my favorite movies to watch like of all time?" I don't think Wizard of Oz would pop up on my list. But when I think about like greatest films ever made, this has to this has to be up there, and it's all the way up there, number two. Is it a little high potentially? I don't know, but. Um, just the the filmmaking in this movie and just the pure universal um universal filmmaking that is a that is this movie is undeniable um judy garland is ridiculously amazing in this the music is awesome it is like the quintessential classic um classic studio musical uh the the ability for the filmmaking to go from black and white to color and for it to pop the way it does the and how it uses that um it it is it it is just undeniably for me like you guys have been talking about objectively like the best film ever made for me objectively one of the best films ever made is the wizard of oz and uh and it is it is a film that anybody can sit down and watch, which is another reason why why I love it too. So uh, number two on my list, The Wizard of Oz. Yeah, uh, no, I think this appeared in my list. I think around the forties, uh, roughly. I think that's where it was. But anyway, the uh, great I, I kind of figured this was being a top ten, which I'm not mad at because it, it is a really good movie. I love how the 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 Technicolor really pops off the screen that first time. Like we're not in Kansas anymore. <laughs> love that uh that kind of stuff too and it looks some of the songs are really good some iconic moments the monkeys gave me nightmares as a kid too so it's a really solid film too so good pick yeah little known fact uh this movie was actually not shot in kansas so i think it disqualifies <laughs> it from being considered a midwest movie particularly because oz is not really in the midwest but other than that uh yeah i mean who doesn't grow up uh watching and loving uh the wizard of oz and speculating whether that lady really did uh hang herself in uh in the background seriously yeah okay todd number two my number two is sideways now if you need to know how much i love sideways like when i was pouring my wine for this podcast i really did call myself stephanie and say that i was being a bad girl you know that is <laughs> yes that, i do that every time i'm pouring wine and i mean i don't know how else to describe it than that i mean i i don't know what to say sideways is life 
I I mean, it's kind of the, it took a while to get to the point of being one of my favorite movies, but once you begin to understand the characters, you see yourself in every one of them. I don't really care about wine, but I know things about wine because Sideways knows things about wine. And I guess that makes it my Tyler Durden or something. I don't know. So I, I mean, Sideways is I mean, it's a perfect movie. We talk about it all the time. There's a reason. It's my number two adapted screenplay. Number three ensemble cast of all time. It's yeah. But it's the I don't know. May, the reason why I love movies is Sideways. I mean, we've all talked about it at this point, so yeah. Well done. Well done. All right, here we go. Number one of all time. Zach, you're first. Well, you know, when you think about my number one movie of all time, you think about a man, a woman, a child. You think about the Oscars. You think about someone who was busy with their work and could never really commit to their family. But in the end, Lieutenant Frank Drebin did love <laughs> his wife and his newborn kid, even if, um, you know, O.J. Smith might have been the father. Oh, actually, that's not my number one movie. It, it's O.J. Uh, Simpson. O.J. Oh, Smith. I'm sorry. <laughs> Is that a person? You just ruined no. your whole bit. I did. I have to redo it. Such a bad girl. Um, so <laughs> I went with Kramer versus Kramer as my number one movie, uh, in part because um, I, for some reason it wasn't my number one movie on any other list I've ever made before. So out of respect, I have to, you know, have it be the champ, at least for some, you know, five year tenure before, you know, I decide that a separation is better. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I mean, um, you know, it's a movie that, uh, pretty much perfect in every way. I know Todd disagrees. I wonder if Todd likes Kramer versus Kramer more than he likes, um, uh, The Shining. I don't know. We'll have to ask him, but, uh, and I don't know if it ranks on his top 10 sound list either, but it is a great movie. Um, I think it's actually aged really well in spite of, you know, Dustin Hoffman maybe being a toxic figure and the movie has a reputation for being sort of condescending towards second wave feminism. The book definitely is. The book is not actually that great. The movie is a vast improvement over the book. Um, I don't know. You know, when I'm feeling blue and depressed, uh, I think about uh, Ted Kramer and when he's writing that list about, you know, why he should keep his son and why he shouldn't. And he has all those, uh, you know, on the side of why he shouldn't keep his son. And I think about the scene when he's trying to apply for a job on December 22nd and there's everybody's at that big office party that seemed to be popular in the 70s and he's just sitting at his chair very forlorn and nervous and i think about uh you know the the scenes where they're making breakfast and the scene the the uninterrupted uh silent you know like three minute silent shot of him waking up and making breakfast and his and and billy walking over to the kitchen and they're just uh, sitting there reading the newspaper just uh, you know again that the space that this movie gives the characters the time the freedom um, this movie never feels like it's moving too fast or too slow. The courtroom scenes, I think, are, are perfect in the way that they show the characters' kind of transformation. It's not really a movie about uh, divorce. It's more a movie about trying to reconcile, you know, how, how you can uh, end a, a several relationship with someone but, but still have compassion for them. It's a movie about learning about compassion, and it's a movie about uh, someone who transforms. So I think it's the greatest movie ever made. Uh, it's, I, you know, uh, it's it's hard. I think it's hard to find something that has as much emotional resonance uh, in terms of the filmmaking, in terms of the performances. Uh, it's remarkable, and kudos to to Robert Benton and Stanley Jaffe. And a lot of this movie was improvised. Meryl Streep's speech at the end of the movie. Um, was written by Meryl Streep. So I think this was a truly collaborative project, which is cool to hear about. And uh, 
yeah, it's my number one. Woohoo. <laughs> and you're not very excited about it. <laughs> well, I mean, it is better than the shining, I will say. Thank you. I actually agree with that. Uh, but obviously, but uh, you know, I don't know. Um, I listen, a separation is a great movie, but it's not going to make you feel warm and toasty about human the human existence, right? I think you watch Kramer versus Kramer, it gives you some sort of modicum of hope for humanity. So I don't know, I, I think I'd rather be left with that right now. I think yeah. one other had it in the top 100. Was that you, Adam? I did, yes. All right. So, Dustin Hoffman, yeah, I went through a, the Dustin Hoffman phase where I really like him. Oh, he's a really good actor. Like, I had the graduate Kramer first Kramer, Rayman. Other great iconic performances there. So, yeah, I, I agree with that choice there. And uh, I, I really, like I said, I really like it. I haven't rewatched it for some time now, so I definitely have to rewatch it. But, yeah, I, I can't argue with the pick being really high up on your list. So. All right. All right. Okay, we need to get this done in, like, 20 minutes. So Yeah, let's do it. Adam, number one. All right, number one, I was going to do a joke, but the first 45 minutes of Place Beyond the Pines, but we're running out of time, so there we go. Uh, that would have been a good pick. <laughs> what I'm going to say is my number one is The Departed, and I can't find my copy. I know I have it, but it's somewhere. But The Departed, uh, number one film of all time, favorite Scorsese movie. This really hasn't changed too much uh, from last list there, so it's a big shocker there. But I, I really i am a big fan of DiCaprio, and again, another Jack Nicholson performance. I think the whole cast here – was awesome. Uh, I really enjoyed doing our deep dive here too, and I think I just this whole mob uh, scene here. I think it's one of Scorsese. He knocks it out of the park here, and has every all, every actor giving their absolute best. Every performance deserved to be at least nominated for something. We got Mark uh, Mark Wahlberg doing his thing too. So uh, great, uh, yeah. So I love potted my number one. It's been mentioned several times, which I'm happy. It has, it has, it has for sure. All right. I, I feel like we, we, we don't really have anything to say about the number ones. It's like, all right, we know it's there. We've talked about it before. Very much. Well, we're just well disappointingly done. predictable. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. All right. Number one on my list. We have Apollo 13. Also the movie I own the most. My VHS is still in... I mean, officially, I guess it's in Todd's collection, but I have three DVD copies of it. Or no, two DVD copies and then my Blu-ray. So uh, I, I own a lot of lot of copies of it. Um, I mean, we've done a deep dive of this. It, it's the movie I've seen the most. It's the movie that, that made me fall in love with, with just space and the space race and that time in history. It, it's the movie that... Uh, if if I need any if I need something to watch it's just like comfort food movie, it's Apollo thirteen and I can watch it. I can quote the whole thing and uh, and I just love every minute of it. And so uh, it it is unapologetically my favorite movie of all time. So Apollo thirteen, solid. Yep. There we go. Public. All right, Todd, number one. The Deer Hunter, 1978, yes. Michael Cimino. The first time I watched this movie, it was on TNT. So it was a four-hour commercially interrupted TV edited version. And I knew about an hour and a half in that I was watching the best movie of all time. And it only got better from there. And I've never been able to get that experience out of my head. Like how, how swept up I was in the very first time I watched it. 
and whenever it's on TV or whatever, similar to Sideways, I just like can jump in at any point because I these characters feel like I know them. I could hang with them before the war. I could be completely entrenched in some crazy Russian roulette sequence during the war, or like grieve with them after the war. It is the is the complete Vietnam experience and the complete movie experience. And I wish I'd been able to see it on the big screen. Unfortunately, Michael Cimino is dead, and he quit making movies in 1996, so I never got to see any of his movies in the theater. But it's the best movie I've ever seen, and if anything tops it, I would just like explode. And I hope it happens. That was Spike Jones in the Wolf of Wall Street, by the way. You you hope you explode? <laughs> yes. For, which I mean, if you remember the quote in Wolf of Wall Street, you would make, know why that makes sense. Fourth on yeah. my best director list, and Christopher Walken gives the greatest performance ever committed to film. Awesome, awesome. I mean, it's it's in. I, what was it? It wasn't in my top ten. But it was close. It was in my, it was in my next group. What was it? It was number. It was number fifteen. So, it's one of those just depressing movies that is an, an amazing film and don't really want to watch it that much. Yeah, I could see it. It's worth it though. Yeah. He All right. Makes so many other great movies too. <laughs> Internal <laughs> Affairs. That's the only one. <laughs> Yeah, Todd's, Wait, no, was that even him? No, that wasn't him. That was Mike. Todd's list definitely is not an auteur-driven <laughs> list. We got the likes of <laughs> oh, yeah, Biggest and James Foley and some, you know, real classics. But you got Hitchcock in there too, so I guess that's okay. All right, well, let's let's now now that we've revealed our top tens, hold on. Let, let's let's actually first let's count them down, and and recap them really quick, uh, starting with Zach, ten to one. Okay, uh, my number 10 was uh, Uncut Gems. Number nine is Dear Zachary. Number one, eight was Once. Number seven is Sideways. Number six is Apollo 13. Number five is Schindler's List. Number four is uh, The Lives of Others. Number three is In the Bedroom. Number two is A Separation, which is technically my number one, too. But my number one, truly, if I have to choose one, is Kramer versus Kramer. All right, oh Adam. Uh, number 10, The Red Shoes. Nine, Goodwill Hunting. Eight, American History X. Seven, Silence of Lambs. Six, The Shining. Five, The Wrestler. Four, Psycho. Three, Star Wars Empire Strikes Back. Two, 12 Angry Man. And number one, The Departed. And for me, number 10, A Beautiful Mind. Number nine, Inception. Number eight, Modern Times. Number seven, Schindler's List. Number six, Forrest Gump. Number five, Once. Number four, Network. Number three, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Number two, The Wizard of Oz. And number one, Apollo 13. Todd. Number 10, A Man Escaped. Number nine, The Social Network. Eight, Psycho. Seven, Kill Bill Volume 2. Six, Glengarry Glenn Ross. Five, Leaving Las Vegas. Four, Pulp Fiction. Three, The Godfather. Two, Sideways. And number one is The Deer Hunter. I like how even you say Glengarry Glenn Ross, like you're still in disbelief that it's actually that high on the list. I know. <laughs> okay, so let's go over our top 25. Our, our website's top 25 of all time. I'm scared. First, let me pay off something that started about a month ago. The prop bet of how many were going to appear on all four lists. What was the line at, Todd? I put it at five and a half. Zach said like 18, but then I think we agreed it was going to be like eight or Three something. Four. Eight. Ten. It is at ten. Ten films appeared on all four lists. 31 films appeared on at least three lists. There we go. And wow. a total of... For a total of, let's see here, 279 films appeared on our top 100s. So, uh, let's see here. The Just Mists, 
I'll get I'll give you the uh, the ones that appeared on three lists that didn't um, that didn't make the list. So uh, so twenty six to thirty one we have Hoosiers, City Lights, Before Sunrise, Minority Report, American Whoa. Beauty, and Hoop Dreams just missed mm. our top twenty five. So here we go. Uh, number 25 of all time, according to almostsideways.com, is The Silence of the Lambs. <laughs> Why did that have to mind push it over? <laughs> number 24, Fight Club. Right. Num- number 23, Citizen Kane. Uh, number 22, Parasite. There we go. Number 21, The Shawshank Redemption. Number 20, Casablanca, which actually tied with the next, but the next one, the tiebreaker, number 19 is The Godfather. It's kind of interesting that The Godfather and Casablanca tied. Uh, Number 18, Star Wars, A New Hope. Number 17, Once. Number 16, Dear Zachary, A Letter to a Son About His Father. Number 15, Psycho. Number 14, Kill Bill Volume 2. Number 13, The Deer Hunter. Number 12, Schindler's List. And number 11, the highest film that only appeared on three lists, Apollo 13. Whoa, there we go. Now, the top 10, the films that appeared on all four of our lists in order. Number 10, The Truman Show. Which, if it hadn't appeared on all four lists, would have been around 30. But it appeared on all four lists, so it's number 10. Number 9, Requiem for a Dream. Number 8, Almost Famous. Number 7, The Departed. Number 6, Uncut Gems. Number 6. Number 5, in the bedroom. Number four, Pulp Fiction. Number three, Goodfellas. Number two, the one list we could mention it on, Fargo, which means number one, and by far, number one, Sideways. Wow. That's good. We would be doing ourselves a disservice if that didn't appear. I I think so. I think so. I just like when you said uncut gems in the bedroom. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So there we go. There's our top 25 of all time, according to according to our rankings. I like it. It's a good list. It's a really good list. I have some other prop bets. Oh, oh yeah, Todd, go through go through the rest of the prop bets. Uh, so Adam has a movie that he just watched that we've never heard of. Uh, that was a no, so the plus 250 would have cashed. Zach having the most foreign films and minus six and a half. Terry had four. Adam had four. I had 12. Zach had 22. So yes, he did suffer by, money. by about four. That was almost a quarter of his list. <laughs> Terry's number one being Mr. Smith Goes to Washington at plus 500. That was a no. Over under five and a half Tarantino movies mentioned. Uh, there were five. So, oh, great under. line then. Great line. Adam breaks one of the rules at even money. That was a no, unfortunately. <laughs> I, I, yeah, what about I the ambient noise? Isn't that a 
great. <laughs> 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 should be. Uh, over under two and a half superhero movies mentioned. Uh, there were four all on Terry's list. <laughs> uh, much, yeah. Over under six hour podcast. It's now well over. Um, <laughs> over under seven and a half f bombs. I lost track at eleven or something when we were doing this. <laughs> but... Oh yeah, yeah. Back back in the original <laughs> recording. Yeah. Yeah, and then we have the most mentioned actor. Uh, my favorite. I had Robert De Niro one uh, one to four. Tom Hanks two to one. Al Pacino three to one. Well, the most was Robert De Niro had fifteen movies. Fifteen times his movies were mentioned. Jack wow. Nicholson not on the list. I should have had a field at thirteen. Wow. Tom Hanks twelve. Al Pacino and DiCaprio both had ten. Harvey Keitel at nine. Those were the. the those are the most. Um, most mentioned actress, I had Uma Thurman as the favorite, the Meryl Streep, Sissy Spacek, Francis McDormand. Uh, the number one was Uma Thurman with nine, and then eight for Francis McDormand, eight for Talia Shire. Nice. Um, and yeah, somehow we had six Jennifer Connelly. I did not see that coming. Carrie Fisher also had six. The most well, when, when four of us, when all four of us say "Requiem for a Dream," yeah, that's true. Yeah, and then and then two right. beautiful minds. That's what did it. Oh shit! And then there's another one, Little Children. So I, <laughs> oh gosh. Wait no, yeah, yeah. So then yeah, there'll be eight. So seven. Yeah, I don't know. Puts her in the third. Most mentioned director. The favorite was Scorsese. Then Linklater. Then Tarantino. Spielberg. Kubrick. Uh, the winner was Spielberg with 13 movies. Well, no. Yeah, no, I was actually tied with Scorsese. I guess now that I look at it, yeah, they both had 13. Tarantino had 11. Linklater, 9. Nobody else had more than 7. So there you go. So our favorite actor, apparently, is De Niro. Our favorite actress is Uma. Uma. And our favorite director is uh, Scorsese and Spielberg, apparently. Sounds like we need to deep dive Mad Dog and Glory. We <laughs> <I> should. <laughs> all right, all right. Well, this has been a lot of fun to to go through over last few month or last month, last few weeks. Um, let's wrap this up with a quote of the day. Uh, let's see here. Let's go. Let's go in order. Zach, what's your quote? My quote comes from Sideways, and uh, I'll just I'll, I'll I'll read it. Listen, man, you're my friend, and I know you care about me, and I know you disapprove, and I respect that, but there are some things that I have to do that you don't understand. You understand literature, movies, wine, but you don't understand my plight, and none of you will ever understand my plight of putting Kramer versus Kramer number one, just as I'll never understand why Todd loves the deer hunter that much, but, you know, we all have our own plights, so that we don't understand. Exactly. It's the I Ching of Jack. Put it beautifully. <laughs> Adam, quote... All right, so I guess my quote, I'll, I'll quote The Wrestler here. Uh, it's I'm paraphrasing mostly, but after this, after the grueling experience of putting these lists together and although all these recordings, I'm a broken down piece of meat. I just want you guys to hate me. So there we go. That's my little <laughs> paraphrase. Uh, <laughs> well played. Ricky Rourke. There we go. Well played. All right, my quote comes from Apollo 13. It, it's... Uh, when uh, when Jim Lovell reveals it's a, it's his last mission that he's about to go on, and he says, "I'm in command of the best ship with the best crew that anybody could ask for," 
I'll be walking in a place where there's 400 degrees difference between sunlight and shadow. I can't imagine ever topping that. That does not describe this podcast. <laughs> No, thank you. <laughs> no, I mean it's it, it's closer to describing than not. It, it, this is it, this is always fun, and it's one of the highlights of my week every week. So I'm glad we do it. I mean, we we do it for each other more than we do it for the, you know, 50 listeners that actually download this thing every week. So uh, I think it's just us downloading it 50 times, Jerry. It it might be. It might be. Yeah. All right, Todd, wrap wrap us up. Uh, it comes from the deer hunter. It comes right after uh, uh, Nick just like uh, on a whim proposes to Linda, and he's like, I, I don't, I don't, I don't know what I'm saying. And she says, I think what goes through your mind comes out your mouth, and that describes this podcast. <laughs> that that perfect. is the perfect way to to wrap this up. All right, with that, we're gonna draw this podcast to a close. Thank you guys so much for listening. Uh, we'll be back at you next week. Back to our regularly scheduled programming now that our top 100s are revealed. Uh, Until then, have fun watching movies, and we'll catch you on the flip side. Despite your crass behavior, I'm glad we were able to do this together.